Yale's world in sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get into today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, especially the senoritas and chicas, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, let me see. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum. Shalom. Konnichiwa. So glad that you could be with us. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to my podcast. I hope everybody's doing great. I hope you're doing fantastic. How are you feeling? You're feeling good. You're looking good. You're sounding good. I love the energy. I love the spirit. I love the drive. I love everything that you're all about. Love the positivity that you're sending. I love that education that you're going to be getting. I love the fact that you're looking to grow. I love the fact that you're looking to learn. I love the fact that you're looking to uh, treat each other the way that you want to be treated. So right there, man, that's a positive. Move this, move this society in the right direction. We can do it. You can do it. I'm not Tony Robinson you. I'm just saying, you know, you just go ahead and you just bring your chi. You bring your, your aura. That positivity, what you got going, come on, man, bring that special skill that the Lord gave you, make somebody laugh, make somebody feel, make somebody feel better, make somebody, you know, do something that's going to put a, a smile on someone else, else's face. That's all I can ask from you, man. That's all I can ask from you and educate and listen and learn, make this world a better place to be. So in 150 years, the bullshit that we're going through right now in this country, going through right now in this world, all of this stuff in about 100 years will be something where we look back on the history books and your great, 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 great grandchildren will sit there and say, damn, y'all were really that fucked up back in the day? Ooh, I'm glad that uh, we're past that stuff. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about, man. By the time I um, reach heaven's gates, not the uh, cult, but as soon as I reach uh, the heaven's door and uh, they read my resume and hopefully let me in, and I could be reunited with my dad, I could be reunited with my mom, I could be reunited by that time with my uh, other family members, I can go ahead and see about watching a little Otis Redding concert. I can go ahead and talk about uh, going to see Joe Frazier fight Muhammad Ali for the 5,866th time. If I can get some tickets to the HBA, that's the Heavenly Basketball Association, so I can see what Kobe Bryant's team up there is doing against Wilt Chamberlain's team being coached by John Thompson and the other team being coached by Red Auerbach. I mean, I can't wait, man. Can't wait to see the Heavenly Football Association. Can't wait to see the Heavenly Football League, you know, having Johnny Unitas go up against Y.A. Tittle with um, with Ernie Davis running up against that strong defensive line with Merlin Olsen and and um, and Deacon Jones and those type of guys. And go watch myself a baseball game and see if Satchel Paige can strike up Babe Ruth again and see if uh, Josh Gibson can hit a towering home run off a pitch from Walter Johnson. Can't wait. Can't wait. But until that day comes, if I'm lucky enough, if I'm blessed enough to do that, I'm going to see what I can do through my podcast and just through myself interacting with others to see what I can do to move this society along in a much better direction. And I hope that you're going to be doing the same. Wendell's World in Sports. 
I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things that I want to get into today in the world of sports. I'm going to move the talk about the NFL. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to go into it this podcast. I know the NFL is about playing the hits, and I love the NFL. And yes, I know this Russell Wilson drama. I just want to see when the cloud dissipate. All after all the evidence has been recovered and brought to the light, I want to see what's going on because Russell Wilson is talking about. Well, I I want to stay with the Seattle Seahawks, but I wouldn't mind playing for these four teams and. You know, all the speculation and Adam Schefter's talking about this and Ian Rappaport is reporting on that. So just want to get just a little clearer, you know, a little clearer, a little, little better uh, thoughts in terms of what Russell Wilson is doing and give my thoughts and opinions about that because it's just, right now it's just a little bit too murky. And, you know, you got the Dak Prescott situation. NFL QB drama. It just keeps us going. Keep us going. So I'm just going to just kind of put that aside for this podcast. I want to talk about Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, HBCU, his Jackson State Tigers, Wildcats, whatever they're called, beating up on some poor team, 53 to nothing. But afterwards, some of his jewels and some of his items were allegedly stolen. Dion had some things to say in the press conference where it's kind of like, whoa, hey, Dion, I understand you're upset. I understand you're mad and flustered and all those type of things, but watch it, man. Watch it. Watch it. I'm just saying I'm not criticizing you or this, that, and the other. Just kind of watch what you're saying. I'll let you guys know exactly what I heard and what I read from him that made me say, whoa, he needs to kind of slow down and chill just a little bit concerning the situation. So I want to get into that. The Boston Celtics, are they going to recover being two games below 500? There's some stuff in the NBA as we move toward the break for the uh, NBA's All-Star game. There's some teams who are looking at that little that little uh, break that are saying, whew, thank goodness, we need it. I think at the top of the charts, I think the number one team doing that is the Boston Celtics. I'll go ahead and talk about that. Also talk about the uh, All-Star game. Who should be playing? Who should not be playing? What's your definition exactly of an All-Star? Because we do this all the time. I can't believe this guy made it over this guy, and this guy should be playing, and this, that, and the other. What exactly is your definition of an all-star? Before we start having a discussion about this person should have made it, that person should have made it, we need to have a more clear discussion about what is your definition of an all-star. Because sometimes my definition of an all-star might be different than your definition of an all-star because of whatever circumstance. So because of that, I might value someone as an all-star based on criteria that might, might that might not be that important to you. So we need to kind of go ahead and take a look at that. I'll go ahead and take a look at that. Man, this stuff with the Minnesota Timberwolves. You got David Vanderpool up there, widely regarded, highly respected, sitting at your assistant coach. You fire Ryan Saunders, and then you go ahead and you do this nonsense with the uh, Toronto assistant? Come on now. now. There's a situation brewing in the NBA, which... I don't think too many people, including myself, are really cognizant of the fact that there's a lack of uh, black head coaches in the NBA. And it's like, wow, you know what? When you step back and think, it's like, yeah, that is true. There really are too many black coaches. There's, there's not enough black coaches in the NBA when you speak about a league that's 80% African-American and the fact that you only have eight black head coaches. And at one time you had up to 16 or 14 or something like that. But with the NBA being so woke and with the NBA having so much uh, power placed upon their players. It's kind of interesting that this kind of went under the radar because I think many people deduce the fact that 
if LeBron James wants a black head coach on his team, guess what? LeBron James is going to have a black head coach on his team. If Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant went to the Brooklyn Nets organization and said, we are strongly considering um, uh, joining your squad, but if you had a black head coach, that could kind of put us over the edge in terms of our intentions to go there. And Jacques Vaughn or Ty Lue or I don't know who you are, go ahead and get somebody out there who's black and we'll... Uh, will highly, strongly consider it. You don't think the Nets would have been like, hell yeah, see you later? You don't You don't think that the Brooklyn Nets didn't go to KD and Kyrie and those guys and say, what's your thoughts about Steve Nash? If after Kenny Atkinson was fired, the job that Jock Vaughn did, if Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving said, we strongly recommend that you go ahead and you make um, Jock Vaughn the permanent head coach or give him a three or four year deal, that that wouldn't have happened. So I think a lot of times... The, um, the, the the folks, media, whatever, they kind of, I don't know, they, I'm not saying turn a blind eye, but it's like with all the power that these players have in the NBA, that the fact that there's not too many black head coaches, how big of a deal is that if you don't have the superstars? I mean, hell, LeBron James is going to make it thoughts and opinions known, known about anything, right? Whether it's social or whatever. I mean, he put a microphone in front of his face and ask him a question, he's going to give you an answer. So it's it's interesting that we haven't heard LeBron or we haven't heard one of the uh, Chris Paul or one of these guys come out and be more forceful in terms of pressuring the folks to talk about why there's not any more black head coaches in the NBA. But I'll go ahead and talk about that a little bit later and, yeah, give you a little recap in terms of the HB. I was doing the, um, through the entire month, I was talking about the, uh, for uh, February being Black History Month, I was doing the uh, profiles in terms of the black athletes. It skewed just a little bit when I talked about the assassination of Malcolm X and talked about Mary Wilson, one of the founders of the Supremes, Diane. They were Supreme, the Supreme, 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 whatever. But uh, so I went off the road just a little bit, detoured just a little bit when speaking about those two legends and, those, and that historical event. But mainly... Spoke about for Black History Month on my podcast, made time to talk about Jack Johnson, made time to talk about Joe Lewis, made time to talk about Bill Russell, made time to talk about Jim Brown and the contributions that they made, not only in their sports, but also what they did off of the off of the uh, fields and outside of the uh, the arenas that they played in and where they uh, applied their profession. So wanted to do that. Give give you a little bit of a recap in terms of what black history means and these wonderful, awesome American icons, Henry Aaron and such, what they mean moving forward and how these athletes moving forward are uh, very, 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 very important in the way we view each other, the way we view society, the way that we're trying to move society in a place where I think most sane human beings, regardless of race or creed or color, would want us to be at. So that's that's the show, man. That's what I'm going to be talking about today here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Who's going to be speaking it? Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. What's up? Namaste. Going on? What's happening? All those good things. So let's go ahead. I'm going to give you a, a Tiger Woods update. In a statement made by Woods' team regarding his physical situation, which included a detailed update from his surgeon, it said Woods suffered serious injuries, including open fractures to his legs in a car crash in Los Angeles on Tuesday, but is now awake, 
not woke, but awake, responsive, and recovering. The statement also said that the golfer is now recovering in the hospital and that he thanked the hospital staff for their support and assistance. Oh, that's nice, T.W. Uh, police said the golfer was alert when firefighters used the jaws of life to open the car's windshield to get him out. Police said that they checked for alcohol and other signs of him being under the influence of a substance, but there was none found. Very important. And I'm glad that when the news first went down about him uh, being in that car accident, I know the first thing that going to get your attention for six to eight to 12 hours is, oh my goodness, I can't believe this Tiger Woods was in an accident. This is horrible. This is terrible. This golfing is so great. And because of this golfing, it makes him such a wonderful human being. And now you've got these tweets from all these other high profile people talking about Tiger, please, Tiger, please, Tiger, please get ready and get better and all these types of things. When, when that, when the public gets tired of hearing that, but they still want to talk about Tiger Woods in terms of this crash is concerned, what can get the clicks? What can get the folks talking? What can start a discussion after we go through the, this is unbelievable, I can't believe it, you almost died, this, that, and the other. What is the next phase we're going to go to in terms of discussion points or talking points? Was he under the influence? You remember what happened that one night, you know, where he got into an accident. You know he's been checked in for painkillers, right? I mean, is this a situation? I mean, this was a pretty bad crash. Was Tiger under the influence? Was he used drugs? I mean, could it be this, that, and the other? So I'm glad that speculation never really, uh, the embers of that speculation and of that thoughts never really got going. And I'm glad that the statement was put out saying that no, just a, just a car accident. I don't know if he was speeding. I don't know, whatever. But all of the, the various things that people can go to in terms of why he crashed, alcohol, drugs, or or, or something of uh, illegal substance wasn't one of them. So that's good. That's good. That's good. Deputy Carlos Gonzalez was the first officer on the scene. And at the news conference, described Woods as calm and lucid when he spoke to him. Woods won't face uh, reckless driving charges. The officer said it was just an accident. All right. All right. So the cause of the accident remains under investigations. And investigators hope to determine the speed of Woods' vehicle prior to the collision and couldn't rule if Woods was uh, considered a distracted driver. It had to be something, man. If you're going that fast, 7, 12 in the morning, I mean, you know, we're not talking about uh, pitch darkness. I'm quite sure if the sun wasn't out, the dawn was there. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I wasn't there, and I wasn't in the car. I don't know how fast he was going. I haven't been down that road. Don't know the crash site. Now, they said, I don't know if I mentioned it before when I uh, first talked about the uh, TW crash on my last uh, podcast with the fact that, you know what, this has been, this stretch of road has seen 13 uh, car accidents over the last year. So it, it's a little bit tricky to navigate. So who knows? I, I have no idea. I've never navigated it, never seen it. So I don't know the exact speed which you're supposed to be going at. I don't know what the speed limit is. Normally, as you know, me being a driver, you being a driver, the fact when someone says 55, probably 65, or if the speed limit is 65, normally 10 miles over the speed limit is something that we can handle on, on most occasions. So I don't know what the speed limit was of this turn that Tiger was trying to make. So I don't know any of that stuff. Could he have been distracted? Could he have been on the phone? Who knows? I don't know. We do it. You do it. I text and drive all the time. It's horrible. It's terrible. 
It's like, man, if I'm going to die in a car wreck, I, sometimes I do that shit. It's like I'm driving and I'm texting while I'm driving. And I look down for just a quick second and I look back up and I look down and I look back up and I'm distracted. And it's like, man, I bet you if I'm going to go out in a car wreck, this is probably the way I'm going to do it by me texting somebody or me doing some shit on my phone, finding a podcast or whatever, you know, trying to find a hard, hard, po- uh, hard parking podcast with Jay Finning and go ahead and, and be diddling with that. And then all of a sudden I look up and I'm going 65 mile per hour at a parked car and through the windshield I go or something fucked up is going to happen to me. So, you know, that, that type of thing. So I don't know. I'm not here to judge Tiger Woods on his driving abilities or anything like that. I don't know. So what Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva said, he said that reckless driving is actually more of an infraction. It's more than the infraction, and that's a misdemeanor crime that has a lot of elements attached to it, but this has nothing like that. So look, Tiger Woods is rich. Tiger Woods is a well-known public figure. Tiger Woods, again, is super-duper rich. So I'm quite sure that this is going to be taken care of a lot differently than maybe me or you or five people in... If I have people listening to this podcast that have Tiger Woods type money, first of all, God bless you. And number two, can I get your name and number? So, you know, it's a matter of, look, you know, every, everything. Let's just get Tiger Woods back to, you know, let, let's get him up and running again. And, you know, we'll worry about that part later. That's what lawyers, that's what lawyers are for. And that's what being rich in this country is all about. So I was watching some of the news coverage. And I was surfing the cable news channels, you know, when this happened. I was checking out MSNBC, CNN, and for the 15, 20 seconds I could take before they just drive me up the wall with anger, I was watching Fox News. And, of course, when it first happened, a lot of deification and praising and lionizing, glorifying the man being that he is Tiger Woods. You know, oh my goodness, you know, uh, breaking news and this is terrible and let's bring on this person and let's bring on that person so they can talk about how great Tiger Woods is and Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. I mean, Tiger Woods, goodness gracious, here's some water, go walk on it, you know, that type of thing, you know, jump over a Volkswagen, you know, throw a throw a Volkswagen a whole half block. I mean, you know, the, the, the you know, when, when this happens, it's like, oh my goodness, and you know, of course, Fox News. Oh, you know, Tiger Woods, this wonderful golfer, and this wonderful band, and this, that, and the other. And I was thinking to myself, because I do that sometimes. I try to think every every couple, about a couple times a day. You know, they say it's good for the brain if you do that. But I was thinking to myself, I said, you see Fox News over here, and they're talking about, oh, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. What? What would that have been if it would have happened to LeBron James? Now, I know the coverage on CNN and MSNBC would have been the same, you know, oh, this guy, you know, the greatest human being who's ever lived, and he's awesome, and he's wonderful, and LeBron could do no wrong, and LeBron, and LeBron, and what he does for the kids, and LeBron, the greatest basketball player of all time, and LeBron, and LeBron, and LeBron, and, you know, of course, NBC, MSNBC and CNN would have been just, you know, oh, my goodness, this guy's just so wonderful, and talking about his off-the-court uh, uh, things that he's done, building the school and helping out others and helping kids and doing this and oh my goodness gracious, that would have been like you know like, I mean that would have been CNN and MSNBC without question. I mean just the the bowing down to the king would have just been unrelenting, nonstop. What would it have been on Fox News? <laughs> you know, I mean, oh yeah, LeBron James was in a car crash. Could could. Fox News and their fucking asshole 
anchors. Could those could those assholes uh, not resist to take a shot on LeBron James? Could Tucker Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and the rest of those fucking race baiting bigots? Could those guys who have could have constrained themselves, controlled themselves enough not to say something derogatory in between? Hey, LeBron James, great basketball player. LeBron James making a lot of money. LeBron James has done some good things in the community. LeBron James, you know, powerful athlete, all of these things. But from the bitch Laura Ingram who told LeBron James to just shut up and dribble, and there in LeBron James' um, negative comments about the, uh, the criminal con man that we had in the White House for the past four years, their king, their cult leader, could Tucker and Laura, const- you know, contain themselves not to say anything? Or would it have just been the coverage, for instance, if LeBron would have gotten in this type of accident? Let's put out a block of 12 hours. CNN, MSNBC, going strong, going hard for at least eight of those hours. LeBron, 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 LeBron. How much news coverage do you think Fox News would have gave him? An hour and a half? Two? <laughs> so, just one of those things I think about when it's kind of like, yeah, hey, you know, oh, you know, the DFA, you know, the, the these um, public figures, you know, as, as I mentioned before, I, I don't get into it, man. In terms of there, I have a Rolodex in my brain of regular people that I've met that uh, have gone through hell and back, and they've done it without fanfare, they've done it without riches. They've done it without support from the super elites of the uh, public eye. And they're strong people. And they're heroes. And they won't get a sniff on the local news channels. And no one's going to sit there and and deify them and lionize them and hero worship them. Just regular people who I've met. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, old, a lot of old folks, young, you know, gone through harsh times. They've had to do it alone. And they've had to do it without, as I mentioned before, the riches. And hey, you know what? God bless Tiger Woods that he had the money to uh, be able to do everything that he can to uh, get himself back to normal. God bless him. Don't blame him at all. He earned, Tiger Woods earned every single penny of the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that he made. No doubt about it. You know, everything that came his way in terms of the financial stuff, hey, man, God bless him. Use that money to uh, get yourself the best doctors. Use your use that money to get yourself the best um, physical therapist. Use that money to uh, do what you need to do. So this is not a situation where I'm uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, boo-hoo or I'm going to, uh, you know, take the task the, uh, the the super rich. But sometimes I think when we talk about and we lionize these these folks, it's kind of like, yeah, you know what? They've got advantages, thanks to them, that give them the upper hand in this. But just because they got money and just because they can play a mean game of golf or or play a mean game of basketball or or baseball or hockey or whatever, hey, man, there are millions upon millions of people who are just as strong, just as morally tough, just as physically strong in terms of dealing with injuries and overcoming things than the uh, Tiger Woods of the world. So I always want to uh, bring that out. And I always think about that in my mind immediately once they said that Tiger was going to live. 
kind of turn to uh, those thoughts right there. Not being insensitive, not being disrespectful, not being dismissive, not trying to uh, mitigate what happened to Tiger Woods. I'm, I'm just saying, let's kind of let's kind of put it all in perspective. All right, let's let's do that. Can't express upon you guys enough for that to happen. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, what now is the future for T. Woods playing professional golf? Because the chances aren't looking very good. They said here that Woods' lower right leg was smashed and his right foot severely injured. His leg muscles swelled so much that surgeons had to cut open the tissues covering them to relieve pressure. Doctors also inserted a rod into Woods' shin bone and screws and pins into his foot and ankle. Goodness gracious, man. How fast was this guy going to cause all this? The crash caused multiple serious injuries. It smashed Woods' uh, shin bone with primary breaks in the top and bottom parts of the bone and scattering of bone fragments. When the bones in Woods' shin shattered, they damaged muscles and tendons, pieces poked from his skin. God damn. Now, Dr. R. Malcolm Smith, the chief uh, the chief of orthopedic trauma at UMass Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, very familiar with these type of injuries, he said that such lower leg fractures on occasion bring massive disability and other grave consequences. A very rough estimate is that there is a 70% chance of it healing completely. Only 70%. Damn. So you're taking a look at the road recovery. And you're going to have to deal with or tiger Tigers going to have to deal with infections, inadequate bone healing, also have to deal with previous injuries because of chronic back problems. And they're talking about, hey, just you know, the fact that he had surgery also on his back is going to uh, is going to contribute to how tough and how hard he's going to have to re- rehab just to try to get back to semi-normal again. It's going to be months and months before he can bear weight on his left on his leg again. Damn, Tiger also risks fractures that do not heal. Or that grow together only very slowly. And as a result, it, he says that it may take 5 to 14 months for Wood's lower leg bones to grow together, assuming they do so at all. I guess because, you know, with the, I guess in an accident like this, from what I understand, is that with the blood flow, in some places, it, you know, it stops. So the, the blood, you know, because there's no blood flow, the, the bones can't uh, heal accordingly. So, you know, the biggest hurdle was going to be his foot and his ankle injuries. So the range of motion and the strength can uh, take from three months to a year, depending upon the extent of those injuries, even after rehabilitation, Woods may barely be able to walk. Whew! I wonder, I mean, (laughs) and people are talking about, is he going to play golf again? Man, who gives a living fuck? Jeez, man, are you serious? I'm thinking to myself, does Woods have the, maybe not the mental strength, but this, does this guy have the desire to deal with this extended recovery at the age of 45? Now, I'm, when I say the desire, I'm talking about for him to get back on the golf course. You know, a lot of times when these guys come up with these, I mean, this is super serious, but when someone has a serious injury playing a sport, they're always like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to come back. I'm going to, you know, beat this and this, that, and the other. And you know, Tiger Woods is, even though he's a, he's a golfer, and even though he's, of an advanced age of being an elite athlete. He's still, a, am quite sure, for his age, despite the back injuries and the surgeries and everything, I, I still think that he, at the age of 45, for his age, is a supremely 
a talented athlete is a is a uh, fit fit enough athlete to be able to go through the rigors of rehab and put in the time and put in the work because he doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about his bills being paid. He doesn't have to worry about going to a job. He doesn't have to worry about the uh, cost of the medical expenses. The only thing that he needs to do is to be concentrating on his recovery. So because of that, and because of the fact that he's an athlete and it's, it's in good physical shape for his age, uh, chances are, are good. Or if anybody can reach uh, you know the ability to play golf again and go out there on the course and play professionally, it would be someone like a Tiger Woods. But at this point in time, is he like, look, man, you know, I'm ready to have Charlie, my son. I mean, I'm ready for him to take over now. I, I'm I'm going to be rehabilitating and I'm going to be getting in shape so I can be there when Charlie starts doing his thing and when he starts going ahead and becomes a professional golfer or when he graduates from high school, I can be there or when he gets married, I can be there at his wedding or, you know, have the physical wherewithal to be there and enjoy it at the, at the utmost when my son and my other children are going through what they're going to be going through in life. I want to be there for them and I want to be physically at my peak and at my best to be there and not be there in a wheelchair or, you know, if my son is going to be playing golf that, you know, somehow, some way I have to be compensated because of my, my legs or my knees that I can't walk 18 holes or I, can't, uh, you know, be there for for him because of the uh, circumstances. So I think, I don't know what Tiger's thinking. I haven't had a chance to ask him. I'll never find out because I will not be asking him. But it's, how much is he concerned about, look, man, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not going, gonna, I'm not going to go through this hell so I can come back at 48 or 49 and try to win the Masters. I'm going to go through this hell so I can be there for my children in terms of uh, being there for them when they start their their lives, the second phases of their lives and all those type of things. I want to be physically ready. So you take a look at athletes who suffered this type of devastating injury. Golfing legend Ben Hogan, he was involved in a horrific car accident, broke his collarbone, his pelvis, his left ankle and a rib. He came back to win multiple majors. Now people say, well, yeah, that's not, his injuries weren't as serious as Tiger Woods, yeah, but you're also talking about this happening back in 1949 when they didn't have the medical advances that they uh, do now. So I'm not saying that his injuries are as devastating as Tiger Woods, but I'm also saying the fact that because medicine is not where it is today, that I'm quite that uh, Ben Hogan had a long and arduous uh, rehab to uh, come back and win multiple majors. So. They talked about Alex Smith coming back um, of the uh, complications that he had with his leg to come back and play football again. Again, it's Alex Smith, even though there was, you know, thoughts because of a botched uh, surgery that he might have it, he might have to have his leg amputated at the time. I think for Woods, this is even more serious because we're talking about multi- a multitude of of injuries happening to his knees, his shins, his ankle, his foot, his leg. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. God bless you, Tiger. I, you know, I mean, you can, hope you, uh, hope you make it through, man. And when I say make it through, I hope that you're, uh, I hope that you can, uh, go back and I hope that you can make it to where the things that me and you and you and you and you listening to this podcast, you know, us walking, 
I mean, when we walk, we really don't sit there and say, whew, I'm so glad I can walk. I mean, on an everyday basis, we're walking and we don't think twice about it because, hell, we've been walking all of our lives. Well, I mean, Tiger Woods is now put into a position to where, shit, I mean, I might not either walk again or I might, my 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 walking might be compassed, uh, compensated. So, cause, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. So hope that uh, hope that he makes it back to uh, you know being able to do what he needs to do as a normal everyday human being. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, so you got the TW. We got Tiger Woods. We talked about that. NBA, NBA, NBA. The All Star Game starters and reserves were announced. I just found out today that Kevin Durant, because of a hamstring injury, he's not going to be playing. The, uh, Sabonis, uh, Arvidas' kid, DeMontis uh, Sabonis, is going to be taking his place. But we've got the Eastern Conference starters, which were Bradley Beal, Giannis Dedenikupo, KD, as I mentioned before, he was voted in. In fact, he had the second highest vote count behind LeBron, but he's not going to be playing again because of a hamstring. So, but he was named one of the starters along with Kyrie and Joel Embiid. So you have Embiid, Irving, KD, Adenakupo, and Bradley Beal. The reserves are Jalen Brown, James Harden, Zach Levine, Julius Randle, Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, Nikola Vucevic, and now DeMontis Sabonis. For the Western Conference, the starters, of course, Luka, LeBron, Nikola Jokic, Kawhi, and Steph Curry. The reserves... Anthony Davis, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, Zion Williamson, because Anthony Davis is nursing injuries and is unable to play, Devin Booker is going to take his place on the All-Star team. Haven't heard yet exactly what they're going to do because the captains for the game are LeBron and KD. And I don't know if they're just going to keep KD in as a captain and have him not play. Uh, first time All-Stars are Zion, Jalen Brown, Zach Levine, Julius Randle. The head coaches are going to be Quinn Snyder's, Quinn Snyder and Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers. So we go to the, who were the surprises? Who got snubbed? I can't believe this, this, that, and the other. And for the snub, you heard the regular Mike Conley. You heard Chris Middleton. You heard the Sabonis before the uh, ruling on KD, you heard Devin Booker, this was before the ruling on Anthony Davis, and even so, they weren't selected to the All-Star game. Okay, let's kind of go there. Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, they were on the All-Star game, but because of injury, they can't play. So they need someone to fulfill those two spots. But the All-Star game, the players that were selected for the All-Star game were Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, and the others, Devin Booker was not, DeMontis Sabonis was not, so they are replacements. They are not true all-stars in that regard, in my regard, in my opinion. Now, we'll move on from there. So, you know, you had some folks who were sitting there talking about, I can't believe it, this is to make it, Bam out of Bayou, Jimmy Butler were another, uh, other names that were mentioned when people talked about snubs, who should have been in there. And of course, the question is, well, if you're going to talk about uh, this person, that person, these po- folks should have been in the All-Star game, who are they replacing? Who are they bringing out? And I'm not talking about people who are injured. I'm not talking about the uh, KD or AD. Someone on that squad is going to be, should have been uh, 
taken out if you're going to say that Sabonis or Devin Booker or Mike Connolly or Chris Middleton or Jimmy Butler or Bam on a Bayou or, uh, you know, should have, should have made it. So who are you taking out? You're going to take out Zion? You're going to take out Zach Levine? You're going to take out Julius Randle? You're going to take out uh, Nikola Vucevic? Who are you going to be taking out? I say this, Damian Lillard should be starting. But I'm thinking Damian Lillard should be starting not over Luka Doncic. I think it's Steph Curry. And I know Steph's been putting up a hell of a bunch of numbers. And I know he scored 62 against Portland and Dame on uh, uh, earlier in the season. But I just think if you take a look at the consistency is concerned, I think Lillard should be starting instead of Steph. But, you know, that's just me. What's the definition of an all-star game to you? What's the definition of an all-star? Let's put it that way. Where are we going with this here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast? I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So what are we talking about here? What's your definition of an all-star? How do you come up with this guy's an all-star based on what? Are we just dealing with mainly points, rebounds, and assists? How much does he contribute to winning? So for many years, Zach Levine was putting up good numbers, but the Bulls weren't doing anything. So those are what we call empty calorie type of stats. So are we just going to be using points, rebounds, assists? Are we going to be looking at point differential? Are we going to be looking about um, team record? Are we going to be taking a look at plus minus? Are we going to be taking a look at synergy stats and going even deeper? Do you even care enough to do that? Because once again, this is just an all-star game. It's uh, an exhibition game. So... What are we talking about here? Are we going to be talking about overachieving on individual expectations? For instance, Julius Randle was a guy who exploded in terms of what the expectations were. So because of that, maybe he got the edge over someone like uh, Sabonis who was there before. And while he's gotten somewhat better, his numbers are somewhat similar. So you take a look. And I'm just throwing that name Sabonis out there. Just came to me. Same type of position that they play, Eastern Conference guy. So you take a look at Julius Randle and what his impact is made for the New York Knicks. And then you take a look at Sabonis, what his impact is made for the Indiana Pacers. And you take a look at the jump of Julius Randle, what his career stats were before he came into this season and what he's doing with the Knicks compared to uh, Sabonis and what he's been doing. Do you take a look at that and say, because of the surprise, because of the overachieving of what I thought Julius Randle could be, He's going to be rewarded with uh, being uh, in the All-Star game over someone like Sabonis, who A, has already played in the game, and B, basically has just done the same thing. I'm not saying that he plateaued, but I mean, there's nothing that stands out in terms of him being an All-Star in your expectations. Is that it? Are we rewarding consistent excellence over a few seasons? For like, you know, there's always been this quote-unquote logjam. You know, for the Eastern Conference, the Western Conference, there's been, like, for instance, I'll give you Mike Connolly, for instance, where it's like, man, you know, Connolly has been good throughout his career, especially with Memphis. He's been good. He's been, he's been a solid B good. And in some seasons, he's been like, instead of an 85%, he's been like an 87% in terms of how great he's been. But damn, when you're in there, when you're in that conference and you're in there with James Harden and you're in there with Chris Paul and you're in there with all these other all-NBA type performers, it's like, well, you know, there's just not enough guards. You got Dame Lillard in there and this, that, the other. And Mike Conley, for the longest, played in Memphis, which was off the radar for a while. And Mike Conley is someone who doesn't have a lot of uh, pizzazz to his game. He's good. 
He's solidly good, but he ain't going to be yoking on nobody. He ain't going to be crossovering anybody. He's not going to be, you know, pulling up a 40 burger on anybody. He's not going to be doing a triple double on anybody. I mean, he's solid. He's this generation's Bo Cheeks. He's a lesser version of this, this generation's John Stockton playing in Memphis. And he's black. So it's like, you know, in that situation, I mean, Conley is just a solid point guard. Do we want solid point guards in an NBA All-Star game where it's ruled by pizzazz and fancy plays and those type of things? That's one of the deals with uh, that. So a lot of these guys, and I think Zach Levine comes to mind, it's like rewarding consistency over a few seasons, over a, a short period of time. Levine is not putting up numbers that are you know, a lot greater than what he's been doing over the past couple of seasons with the Bulls. It's just that the Bulls don't stink as much as they did in the past couple of seasons. Zach Levine is a guy who threw himself out there in the uh, slam dunk contest, so he adds a little pizzazz to the uh, contest if he plays. Lobbying from him and others have also been a mark of maybe talking about, hey, you know what, maybe we should try for this guy. He's been public about his yearning to go ahead and be an all-star. So, I mean, it's something like this, hey, you know, it leads to my last point. Something new, something fresh to uh, write and report about. Something to talk about. I mean, Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, Zion. You think Zion is an all-star? I don't. Now, ever since Stan Van has uh, put the ball in Zion's hand and made him essentially a, pa- a point power forward for him to uh, get a, a running start, get to the lane and dare anybody to get into his way under... 6'11", 250 pounds. But um, in early in the season, he wasn't an all-star. He wasn't playing like an all-star. He's starting to get there. But how much of seeing Zion in the all-star game is titillating enough to kind of forget the first month or six weeks of the season and put him in there? Again, who would you rather see in the all-star game? Mike Connolly or Zion Williamson? Who would you rather see in the All-Star game? Chris Middleton or Zion Williamson? We already saw Chris Middleton in the All-Star game last season. That's nice. You remember anything that he did? You remember anything that stood out? Milwaukee Bucks fans, that's your boy. Do you remember anything from last uh, year's All-Star game that made you say, Woo, Chris Middleton. Middleton has been very good this season. But again, he's not pulling up astronomical numbers. The Bucks have kind of uh, digressed in some areas. They're not the uh, steamrolling machine that they were to where they have the record to where, look, you're only going to put Giannis in there? And this is the Bucks' record? And Giannis is the only one that's doing anything? There's nobody else? Wow, okay. Last season when the Bucks had the best record in the, in the Eastern Conference and were rolling and moving and grooving, yeah, you had to put someone else in there other than Giannis for the Milwaukee Bucks, and that was Chris Middleton who was uh, the Robin to Giannis's Batman on that team. So that's not happening this year. The Bucks are currently, I believe, what, third, fourth place in the Eastern Conference? They're 19 and 13? Yeah. So Middleton's been nice, but, yeah, you know. Zion, on the other hand, as far as your, as far as your, if you're going to be watching this game, you're going to be watching for what players? You're going to be maybe watching for LeBron. You're going to be maybe watching for Steph shoot 35-footers and try some crazy shit. But, you're also going to be watching to see Zion, you know, you know, you know, yoke on 15 people out there and do a thing. And the fact that Zion is going to be a first-time All-Star, yeah, there might be a little bit of jitters, especially with him being 20 years old, but he's going to go hard. 
LeBron and those guys are like, look, man, I've been here 15, 16, 17 years. I don't want to be here to begin with. I'll get to that in a little bit later, but I don't even want to be here. So, you know, don't expect me to be trying to make a statement. Don't expect me to be, you know, going what Kobe Bryant used to do when he played in the All-Star game. He, he ain't in Kobe. Um, um, LeBron ain't interested in winning the MVP. Steph Curry ain't interested in winning the MVP. Joel Embiid is a center. is not going to do anything to bring you out of your seat. For the most part, the starters really aren't going to be like, ooh, yeah, I want to go ahead and and uh, try to win this MVP. So, you know, down in Atlanta, Trey Young, another guy that possibly maybe could have been added just because of that. He's not going to be playing. So that's not going to be a... Uh, situation where let's get the hometown guy the MVP so look Paul George probably not Rudy Gobert no maybe Damian Lillard I doubt it though Donovan Mitchell I doubt it though Chris Paul no he he don't care I mean he's been to too many of these to really sit there and give 110 percent if you're the Phoenix Suns do you want him doing that anyway so I don't know so I think that in a situation like this when we're speaking about all-stars yeah Zion fits that bill to where if Mike Connolly got over Got the All-Star game nod over Zion. Would anybody be sitting up here talking about, I can't believe that shit. No, but, you know, in a situation like this, Zion adds in that fun factor. Do you equate that? Do you do you measure that? Is that part of the soup that you're cooking or the meal that you're making in terms of what an All-Star player is all about? So there's no right or wrong answer. So the All-Star game and an exhibition game. And since I'm not I'm not their lawyer, so I don't know if those guys have an All-Star game bonus in their uh, contracts. And even if they did, I don't care. I'm not getting a dime of their money anyway. So, you know, it's a situation where, hey, what's more important, being in the All-Star game or being in the NBA Finals for seven days? I know there's been some restrictions with the NBA COVID protocol, but Mike Conley gets seven days to kick back, relax. I don't know. Maybe he can sneak away and go to Hawaii or somewhere. I don't know. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal to me. You know, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Taking a look at the players who got in for the first time. Or I'm taking a look at some of the players who were might have been questioned. Zion, Zach, Nikola Vucic, Julius Randle. Looking at the teams that they play for, New Orleans for Zion, Zach Levine played for Chicago, Vucevic played for Orlando, Randall, of course, played for the New York Thibodeaux. Their combined record, people are like, you know, hey, I mean, for me, empty calorie scoring, big deal. I don't, you know, empty calorie stats is bullshit. Give me a guy who's putting up good numbers on a winning team over a guy who's putting up astronomical numbers for a team that's losing. Well, Zion, Zach, Nicola, and Julius the record of their teams, New Orleans, Chicago, Orlando, and New York, their record combined is 58 and 71. That's a winning percentage of 45%. None of those teams are over 500. And only Chicago and the Knicks are in the top seven in terms of an NBA playoff situation as of right now. New Orleans is 14 and 18. Orlando is 13 and 20. I think Vucevic was just a guy where it was like, I, I think he fit into the spot where it was like, hey, look, this guy has been a really good player for the last couple of years. And he got in last year or a couple of years ago. I know he got in recently, but you know, Orlando stinks. Orlando had nothing going on right now. And poor Nicola, he's doing this, you know, with nobody around. Steve Clifford is a good coach, but I mean, these guys have been racked with injuries, bad draft selections. Um, 
you know, trade rumors all the time. I mean, hell, there's trade rumors right now going on about Vucevic being traded. Now, Orlando's like, fuck no, but it's like, how can this all-star be also be included in trade talks? I haven't seen something like that since DeMarcus Cousins was traded after the all-star game from Sacramento to the uh, New Orleans Pelicans a couple of years ago, a few years ago. So, I don't know. I don't know. Levine, you know, ever since he's had a strong month of February. First, when I saw Zach Levine play during the free week of the NBA League Pass, I forgot who the Bulls were playing. This is earlier in the year. Zach Levine on defense was atrocious. He was embarrassing. Absolutely fucking embarrassing. And for years, everybody knows that Zach Levine doesn't play any defense. But it was, it was, it was, it was a, another level bad. Just the effort level that Zach Levine was giving. It was embarrassing. So based off of that, I was like, man, fuck Zach Levine in terms of, I want the All-Star game. I want the All-Star game. Yeah, maybe if you could lead your team one year over, I don't know, over 26 wins in an 82-game schedule, then maybe then maybe we could talk about you being an All-Star when you're putting up these points. But you are the definition of empty calories. Because I see you score and I see you do the stuff on offense and then I see you play defense and it's beyond atrocious. Well, Levine had a strong month of February. He averaged 31 points, five and a half rebounds, five assists, his three-point shooting was almost 47%. His overall plus seven overall rating when he's on the court. And, you know, the Bulls were six and three in the month of February. And they moved to uh, seventh place in the Eastern Conference. So they made the playoffs. Overall, Levine is sixth in the NBA, averaging almost 29 a game, more than five rebounds, shoots 43% on his threes. And during this time that the Bulls have, you know, been six and three on this nine game uh, uh, sample size here, he's averaging 33.5 points per game, shooting 53% on the threes. So, and he has played. And checking back, he has played better defense. So, okay. All right. He's the only top scorer in the Eastern Conference also to play in every game other than um, LeBron and Nikola Jokic. So, it's like, all right. There also should be some um, points given for those who have played the entire season. Now, unlike LeBron, who is coming off of a very short uh, resting period in between the end of the season and the beginning of the season because the Lakers won the NBA championship. Uh, the Bulls hadn't played, I think, in almost like nine months or something like that. But still, but still, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to him. I'll give it to Zach Levine. So it's like, all right, no big deal. The Bulls haven't been awful as they have been in the last three years where their winning percentage was somewhere around 31%. They finished 13th in the Eastern Conference twice in 11th. Uh, the other time. So, okay, so he's contributing. Nikola Jokic, again, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, Devin Booker, Mike Connolly, Chris Middleton, DeMontis Sabonis can make a uh, can make a deal for all of them. So here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast, yours truly, Wendell Wallace, the question now should be, should a game be played at all? Because you have Giannis and LeBron and Kevin Durant and Melo and Kawhi Leonard talking about you know, this is ridiculous. This is nothing more than a money grab. They don't care about our health and our safety because the NBA is getting criticized because basically they're holding an exhibition game during the coronavirus pandemic while also requiring players and staff members to stay at home 
and avoid all non-essential contact outside basketball activities during the uh, during the season and during this break that they're having. So you know, what what's up with that? Now the NBA incentivized this game by uh, announcing that they're going to commit more than two and a half million in funds and resources toward historically black colleges and universities (HBCUs) and support and awareness around equity and access to COVID-19 care, relief, and vaccines. That's the thing that, you know, Chris Paul was like, hey, man, let's go. I'm good with that then. All right, we can negotiate that. We're we're good with that. Haven't heard anything more about the, uh, oh, I don't feel like playing. This is bullshit either from LeBron or those guys. It'll also be interesting with that being put over their heads in terms of the donations and the funds going to, uh, uh, historically black colleges and universities, what type of effort are those guys going to give? Maybe LeBron comes in and tells Quinn, hey, look, man, play me 20. I don't, you know, I mean, 15, 20, I, you know, I'm just not going to, you know, give it full force. Will LeBron be uh, disrespecting the, uh, be disrespecting the HBCUs if he did that? I don't know. I don't know. But the game is going to be played. Those guys are going to get paid. They're going to have the uh, slam dunk and the skills competition and then the game all at the same time. So they're going to just try to squeeze this bad boy in. Eh, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. But uh, I'm looking forward to the game. I think it's March 7th. The game is going to be in Atlanta. And, uh, yeah, that's what it is with the NBA All-Star game. A good cause. And hopefully those guys, despite their despite their negativity toward it, from some, hopefully they'll give us a good show. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down and discussing today in the world of sports. Again, going to hold off on the uh, NFL talk just for this podcast. Rip Roaring, ready to go next week. I'll be talking about what's happening with Russell Wilson and see what happens with Dak Prescott and see what happens with Deshaun Watson. Finally said that, look, I want out. Met with David Culley, the coach, and was like, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out. So we'll see where it goes from there. Wendell's World and Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. NBA news. The Minnesota Timberwolves, the worst team in the NBA on so many levels. They were criticized across the NBA on Sunday 
last Sunday when they hired when they fired uh, head coach Ryan Saunders before hiring his replacement Raptors assistant Chris Finch that same night. The team overlooked, as I mentioned before, Minnesota assistant head coach and defensive coordinator David David Vanderpool. Vanderpool, who is black, is respected across the league and played a major role in the backcourt development of Damian Lillard and C.J. McCullum when he was McCullum when he was in Portland. And Lillard wrote on Twitter after the news was announced, he said, how the hell did you not hire David Vanderpool when he's right there on the bench? And he's been in front office successfully and on the front of the bench of a winning team successfully. That's what he said. Minnesota Timberwolves star center Carl Anthony Towns can't express his surprise in Saunders firing and the subsequent hiring of Finch on Tuesday. He said on diversity and NBA coaching the ESPN, he said, I'd be remiss if I didn't come on here and mention the amazing work that men of color are doing in this world. Damn right. The only, not only in every other sport and through social justice in every other part of this world and in the organization or whatever the case may be, but for basketball. There are currently over, over only seven black head coaches, as I mentioned before, in the NBA as of right now. Last season, there were six black coaches. They were Lloyd Pierce of Atlanta, J.B. Bickerstaff in Cleveland, Molly Williams in Phoenix, Alvin Gentry in New Orleans, Nate McMillan in Indiana, and Dwayne Casey in Detroit. Three Black head coaches were dismissed from their jobs last season. David Fisdale of the Next was fired in December, and he was replaced by Tom Thibodeau, who just happens to be white. Nate McMillan was fired by the Pacers on uh, August 26, weeks after signing an extension. He was replaced by Nate Bjorkman from Toronto. And Alvin Gentry was let go by New Orleans on August 15th after the regular season and was replaced by Stan the Man Van Gundy, who is white. So a lot of these black head coaches were replaced by uh, white head coaches. So I don't know, man. I'm not, I don't know. Stan Van Gundy, I mean, Tom Thibodeau. I don't Tom Thibodeau, man. He's he's kind of hard to figure out. Did great with, um, he did great with Chicago. Didn't do very well with Minnesota. Doesn't. Excuse me, doesn't work well with others in terms of the front office sometimes. Um, but he's done a good job so far with New York. So I, I, I can't sit there and yell and scream and complain about that hiring. Nate Bjorkman has been, he's gotten the tempo up a little bit better with the uh, Indiana Pacers. They're a much more um, attractive team to watch. They play a much more attractive style, entertaining style than Nate McMillan. I mean, when he was the coach at Portland, and he had Brandon Roy, and he was playing at a snail's pace, and then he got fired for that, speaking of Nick McMillan, and then Larry Bird hired him in Indiana, and a lot of people were saying, really, Nick McMillan? In a league that's trying to get faster, 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 you're going to bring in Nick McMillan, a defensive guy who wants to slow things down and play 82-78 type games? Well, McMillan got the uh, Pacers into the playoffs. He did a pretty good job. But, you know, Nick Bjorkman so far has been a push. In terms of the success, Alvin Gentry let go by, a, um, by a, oh my goodness, David Griffin, who I'm definitely sure that uh, from what I've heard and seen of David Griffin, I don't think that David Griffin was like, as soon as he got the job in New Orleans, yeah, time for me to start firing some black people because they're black. So I don't think 
That was the case with David Griffin, Stan Van Gundy, a guy who coached Orlando and Dwight Howard to an NBA Finals, um, sabotaged his own success in Detroit when he decided that he wanted to also be the president of basketball operations, made that trade for uh, made that trade for Blake Griffin out of sheer desperation to save his job. That didn't work and left Detroit in a horrendous mess, which Dwayne Casey is probably going to uh, pay the price for because Detroit really hasn't turned things around uh, with that organization. But Stan got Detroit in the uh, playoffs with Reggie Jackson and a uh, hobble Blake Griffin and, and um, Andre Drummond and those guys. So, you know, as long as you keep staying away from the... Uh, the business side of things and just allow him to coach. You know, I think that, uh, I mean, Alvin Gentry, he, I don't, I, I, I can't see any type of this is horrible. This is terrible. And if you're going to replace him with Stan Van, I mean, you know, I don't think that's anything worth like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Of course, there's some quality black head assistant coaches in the, in the NBA. But the thing that's, the thing that I think is different than any other, of these sports, I think eventually that these guys are going to finally get their shot. You see Steven Silas get the shot with um, with Houston. You see someone like a J.B. Bickerstaff, Bernie Bickerstaff kids. He's had multiple opportunities to coach when he took over from Kevin for uh, Kevin McHale when he was in Houston and now with uh, taking over from Larry Drew, a black head coach in Cleveland who was uh, not very good. You've, you've seen coaches, black head coaches, get jobs who were not qualified to get coaches at that time. Derek Fisher of the New York Knicks comes to mind. Mark Jackson of the Golden State Warriors come to mind. Jason Kidd of the then Brooklyn Nets come to mind. I mean, a situation where a lot of these guys, they went straight from playing to having a head coaching position. Jason Kidd didn't have any type of uh, head coaching experience when he got his job with Brooklyn. Mark Jackson didn't have any type of organizational experience when he got the job coaching in Golden State. Derek Fisher was retired for about 15 minutes before Phil Jackson picked him to be the head coach of the New York Knicks. So there's been some examples of, you know, well, if the white guy gets to do that, why can't the black guy? Oh, the black guy did. Okay, damn. All right, moving forward. But there has, there, that, that, this is an issue, I think. But I put out those examples to maybe that's one of the reasons why this really hasn't been a talking point or a discussion. And when you see the problems that Major League Baseball and the NFL have in terms of hiring people of color, you move to the NBA and you can point to many examples of black coaches who haven't been very good getting second chances. So, you know, look, the from 2011 to 2014, the NBA averaged 11 black head coaches per season. And then on opening night of 2012, half of the NBA's 30 head coaches were people of color, including 14 black coaches. And that's an all-time high. Now, ever since then, there's been a decline. So we, and, and I believe Adam Silver, when he says, hey, look, this is something that I'm, I'm really um, paying attention to. And, and I think what makes it a lot different, because I, I believe... Also, when you go back to the NFL, you know, Roger Goodell is saying, yeah, I think it's a problem. The fact that people of color, uh, black head coaches are not getting jobs as far as getting true opportunities 
in the NFL in terms of being a black head coach. You know, people like to sit there and think that Roger Goodell is the one kind of manipulating all of this. Like, he's the reason why Colin Kaepernick is not in the league. He's the reason why black coaches aren't getting equal opportunities to become head coaches. That Roger Goodell can fight and scream and shout and beg and plead all he wants to. If the owners say, look, Colin Kaepernick's not going to be in the league, go fuck yourself, then that's just the way it's going to be. Roger Goodell can't over can supersede that decision made by a bunch of old, rich, out-of-touch white guys who are billionaires and saying, well, no, screw you, Jerry Jones. No, screw you, Robert Kraft. No, screw you, Jim Mersey. No, screw you, Cal McNair. You're going to be hiring a black head coach, no questions asked, and by 8 o'clock tomorrow, Colin Kaepernick is going to be on one of your rosters. I have spoken. Get your old geriatric self out of my fucking face. Roger Goodell can't do that. Unless he wants to lose his $44 million a year gig. And let me tell you something. If I'm making $44 million a year, multiple years, uh, you're damn right. I'm going to be sitting up there going, yeah, sorry. Well, you know, life's tough. <laughs> I can't believe Colin Kaepernick is not in the league. This, that, and the other. I'm making four. These guys are paying me $44 million to uh, make sure Colin Kaepernick stays out of the league. Guess who ain't going to be in the league? Colin Kaepernick. If I'm being paid $44 million a year for multiple, multiple years, and the uh, NFL owners, my bosses, want uh, want me to keep the uh, head coaching carousel Lily White. Well, guess who? Guess what uh, carousel is going to be Lily White when it comes to uh, hiring coaches? As long as the uh, forty-four million dollar paycheck I get doesn't bounce me. But uh, yeah. So, but uh, getting back to the NBA on that point, yeah, I think Adam Silver, just like Adele, is trying to do something in terms of uh, improvement in the hiring practices of these black head coaches. And it's a punch in the gut. It's a kick in the groin. It's a slap in the face to the league, to Silver, and to a lot of respected black head coaches who should be getting opportunities when something like this happens. Because normally, when a coach gets fired midway through the season or during the season, the assistant coach becomes the uh, the head coach. He might be the interim coach, but that's what happens. Very rarely do you see a team fire their coach in midseason and then go pluck another coach off another team's uh, staff. So it's like, damn, man, you've got David Vanderpool. He's highly respected. He's done great work. Now, being the defensive coordinator from Minnesota, I mean, I don't know about that, but when you have guys like D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards and you have that lack of experience and talent to work, work with, well, you're not going to be turning into the 2008 Boston Celtics on defense. But normally, it's you go ahead, you promote the assistant coach to interim head coach, and you give him a season to see what happens. And if you like him, if you don't like him, then you, then you move on from there. The fact that, I don't, I don't know exactly how this went down in Minnesota. Now, they're saying that, yeah, you know, we wanted to, uh, we, we interviewed Chris Finch a little while ago, but because of uh, other circumstances, we went ahead and hired Ryan Saunders, but we really did like Chris Finch. So the reason for us now going to Chris Finch and the reason why we made this move is because we already went ahead and did our due diligence and we really wanted that guy at the beginning, but because of circumstances, we couldn't, but now we have the opportunity. So now we just went ahead and got the guy that we should have got before we uh, hired Ryan Saunders. Bullshit. Fuck you. Bullshit. That's, uh, you know, that's not how it goes. Look, man, the we're coming up on the all-star break. The season is damn near halfway over. 
the Minnesota Timberwolves aren't going anywhere. As Brian Windhorst said in this podcast, once the All-Star game is over and the break is over, the Timberwolves have an extremely hard schedule. The Timberwolves are also are not going to have that much practice time. So if Chris Finch is going to come to the team, he's not going to have the ability to put in his philosophy offensively and defensively. So why are the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to go ahead and do this when they could have gone ahead, they're going to fire Ryan Saunders, promote David Vanderpool, keep everything copacetic, and then if they really did want Chris Finch after the season was over, you go ahead and you go and hire Chris Finch. Why in the world are you going to uh, disrespect David Vanderpool? Why are you going to disrespect the players like that that are already on the Minnesota Timberwolves team? Throw them in disarray by bringing in a guy who, I don't know what you do with him. What, maybe you get to find out what his favorite color is and what his favorite glass of wine and what his favorite fast food is? I don't know what else you're going to find out about the coach. As I mentioned before, because of the lack of practice time that those guys are going to have after the break is over, what is Chris Finch going to do? How is Chris Finch going to implement his offense and his defense and his philosophy? He's not going to be able to because of lack of practice time. So it doesn't make any sense for the Minnesota Timberwolves to go ahead and do this. Look, if you want to fire Ryan Saunders, I get it. I understand it. But then to go ahead and not give David Vanderpool an opportunity to prove himself when this is starting to become more of a topic that's being discussed in the NBA, the lack of opportunities for black head coaches to uh, ascend to the head coaching position, it makes no sense to me. Tone deaf, out of touch. It's a bad look for the organization. Oh, and guess who else is paying attention to all of this? The players in the NBA. So I don't, I don't, Minnesota is not in Los Angeles or New York or Miami. It's not a destination town as far as free agents are concerned. You know, the Lakers can fuck up all they want to in terms of having poor management. I mean, this is before they won the title and all this kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is the Lakers, for years and years and years before they 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 got LeBron James and LeBron James recruited Anthony Davis to go to L.A. and Anthony Davis wanted to go to L.A. was formulated that tandem to win a championship. But before L.A. but before LeBron got to L.A., do you remember how wretched the Lakers were with Bill, with uh, Bill Walton's kid Adam Walton? What was his name? Not Bill Walton's kid. He's been in Sacramento so long in purgatory, I forgot. Uh, Luke Walton. Jesus, how Adam Walton, what? Um, but yeah, do you remember the Luke Walton days of the Lakers where they were blowing, they were winning 20-something games a year and the Clippers were whooping their ass and lopsitting them to death and you had draft picks like Julius Randle and Brandon Ingram and, and D'Angelo Russell and... Uh, all these high draft pick Lonzo Ball turned out to be nothing, and the Lakers were continually losing and losing and losing, and the organization was in disarray. And then Magic came in, and his drama with Rob Palenka and everything. If all of this bullshit was going on in Sacramento, if all of this nonsense was going on in Minnesota, if all of this stuff was going on in Indiana, if all of this stuff was going on in Milwaukee or Minnesota, they would be screwed. As many times that the Lakers missed on their first-round draft picks, or at least were, weren't able to develop any of their first-round draft picks, D'Angelo Russell was a bust. Lonzo Ball didn't live up to expectations. Now, there, he was a, he was there for only a short time, but he didn't make the impact that many people thought he was going to. Same thing with Russell. Same thing with Ingram. Same thing with uh, uh, Julius Randle. If that happened to a team that wasn't in L.A., that team would be screwed for five to ten years. 
But because LA can, because LA is LA, and they can go to LeBron and say, want to live in LA? Play for the Lakers? Live in LA? Live in LA? Live in LA? All is forgiven. You know, you can mask those mistakes that the Lakers made. And then with getting Anthony Davis, bingo bongo. Minnesota can't do that. LA can get away with doing the shit that uh, Minnesota just did and have the black superstars be like, yeah, that's fine because they get to live in LA. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give them a mulligan on that one. In Minnesota, no. Not only do I not want to live in the cold weather, not only do I not want to live in the Midwest, you do all those things, you got a poor organization that did the black man like that? Shit. You think I'm interested in going to Minnesota? I don't think so. So, just bad all around from the Minnesota Timberwolves. Bad all around from the uh, Timberwolves. And it also put a spotlight again. I'm quite sure the league and others are like, man, really? I mean, we kind of had this sort of kind of under control in terms of what we're going to be doing about the lack of uh, black head coaches in the league. And now you guys go ahead and do this bullshit, which brings these brings this uh, topic front and center. That's all we need right now. We're trying to get these guys to uh, go to the All-Star game and give it 100% or at least 75%. We threw in the caveat of donating money to the HBCUs. And at the same time, the Minnesota Timberwolves are doing this bullshit and bullshitting uh, David Vanderpool like this. <sighs> if it ain't one thing, and a motherfucker another word to my daddy and my granny and my mother. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So again, this is... I, I, Really didn't think about this in terms of uh, the lack of black head coaches because the NBA is just so uh, so blackish in terms of their uh, you know in terms of their leadership in terms of the power and the impact. Again, this isn't football. No, nobody in team sports in this country, or maybe even in in the world, maybe outside of Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or someone like that, but for the most part. Nobody in team sports has the power that an NBA player has. There's nobody, I, I don't think, any powerful in their league than LeBron. Le- LeBron can, I mean, Le- LeBron can do so many flipping things. I mean, you're speaking, even now, while he's still the best player in the game, I mean, as of right now, he's, you know, 17th year, this, that, and the other. But, you know, imagine seven, eight years ago when he was going through this shit, the, the power that he wielded, the things that he could have done, rightfully so, for a franchise, because if you get LeBron James on your team, chances are you're either going to A, win a championship, and B, at the very least, get there. If you take a look at what LeBron James means. So if you're a franchise like the Cleveland Cavaliers, hell yeah, you're going to bend over backwards to do everything LeBron asks you to do. Hell yeah, if you're the Lakers. And I just mentioned the sad sack of affairs that you had been, the, the way that the Lakers were completely irrelevant, which in turn hurt the league. Hell yeah, the Lakers uh, obtaining LeBron through free agency was a great move, was an unbelievable move. You don't think the Lakers would have damn near, I don't know, shit, I, who knows how many people they would have murdered to uh, try to bring LeBron James in if he would have said, go ahead and, you know, go ahead and hillside strangler somebody. That's the power of LeBron James. So it's interesting, we have this problem concerning black head coaches, and as I mentioned before, man, you put a microphone or a camera in front of LeBron James and ask him anything, whether it be societal issues or anything like that, he's going to give you an answer. It's amazing to me that in his own sport that he's not taking a bigger role and saying, hey, why aren't there any uh, black head coaches going on? 
And when you take a look at, again, a perfect example was the Brooklyn Nets. Jacques Vaughn did a really good job at the interim after the Nets fired Kenny Atkinson last season. If Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant came up to Nets organization and say and said, keep Jacques Vaughn at the head coach, guess who would be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets right now? Now, the situation with the uh, L.A. Clippers, same thing. Kawhi, Paul George, if they would have said keep Doc Rivers, guess what Steve Ballmer would have been doing? He would have been kept, keeping uh, Doc Rivers. Now, <laughs> quite sure that, you know, when they went to Kawhi and Paul and said that we're thinking about letting go of Doc Rivers, I'm quite sure by the looks of things, by the uh, by the events that happened, Kawhi and Paul said, I mean, do what you got to do. But I'm quite sure... When those guys said we want, or if those guys said we want Ty Lue as the head coach, guess who was going to be the head coach? Especially when the contracts for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard gave them the opportunity, gives them the opportunity to be free agents in a couple of years, and all of the equity that was lost by the by the um, L.A. Clippers to go get Paul George from the Oklahoma City Thunder, all the first round draft picks and all that draft capital and that they gave to the Thunder. Goodness gracious, if Paul George left the Clippers, I mean, they're screwed. They're screwed for the next five years. Steve Ballmer knows that. Lord Frank knows that. So you don't think that Paul George wields some power? Same thing with Kawhi Leonard. If Kawhi Leonard and Paul George decide to take their talents elsewhere after everything that the Clippers did to get those two? The Clippers are relegated as being the Donald Sterling 1980 Clippers for the next five to seven to ten years. If the worst case scenario happens and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard go somewhere else. You don't think that if Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard, I bet you Kawhi Leonard probably has the power to have his Uncle Dennis run the basketball operations if it was, uh, if it came down, down to it. Being facetious, but I'm saying if, if Kawhi wanted to, uh, really flex his muscles in that regard, Shit. He could have Uncle Dennis, Uncle Ray Ray, Uncle Fatima, well, a guy named Fatima, Aunt Fatima, you know, Devontae, all his homeboys from Riverside come in and, and do something as far as what the team is concerned. So, damn, man. So, so it, again, it goes back to, well, why haven't these guys been more vocal about, I haven't heard LeBron James say anything about this Chris Finch situation or the hiring in Minnesota. I haven't heard LeBron. I haven't heard um I haven't heard Steph Curry. I haven't heard Chris Paul. I haven't heard Carmelo Anthony. I mean we've heard Carmelo Anthony. We've heard Kawhi and those guys, those superstars say something about not wanting to play in the All-Star game, right? So all of a sudden now they're mute on this. I'm glad that Damian and CJ came to the defense of David Vanderpool. But nobody else? So those on the outside looking in see that, and it's like, well, what's the problem? Because I'm quite sure that the league has put itself in the position, or it, it seems like the league is in the uh, is being perceived as what the players want, the players get, especially the more powerful players, the more impactful players. So if there was such a big deal in terms of putting more black head coaches in the NBA in that position, then LeBron and those guys would make it happen. So if LeBron ain't saying nothing about it, then it must not be a problem. Well, interesting that everybody's favorite person to hate, and sometimes this guy does get on my nerves with some of the shit he does, but um, Kyrie Irving 
was one of the guys who last season was talking about, hey, you know what? We start, we need to start uh, seeing more black uh, head coaches. Him and, um, oh, the guy who played for the Los Angeles, Avery Bradley, yes. Avery Bradley and uh, Kyrie. They were talking about when the players were thinking about coming back to the bubble last season, Kyrie, who wasn't going to go back there, and Avery Bradley, who wasn't going to go back there, they wanted to hear from the league office and ownership and sponsors and, uh, and the league sponsors, their partners. They wanted a, an, uh, a meeting with those guys to uh, talk about improving the hiring practices for black front office and head coaching candidates and making it so the league's management better reflects the composition of what this league is all about, which is 80% black. So Kyrie, who, as I mentioned before, I mean, gets a lot of, uh, gets a lot of flack and gets a lot of criticism and gets a lot of you motherfuckers from a lot of fans out there. Hey, you know what? He might be, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? His personality might be, um, how can I put this gently? Might be unique, might be eccentric. Uh, I don't know what you call it, but you know, there's some substance to what he's saying and to uh, what he's doing. So, as I mentioned before, if Kyrie and Kevin Durant were fine with the hiring of Steve Nash and relieving Jacques Vaughn of his duties, guess what? That was going to happen. And there's also this perception, I think, from from white folks. Uh, not all, of course, but there's this perception among the white community that. If you give black people too much power, basically they're going to treat it like we treat the power that we have in terms of the privilege. Like like, no, like all of a sudden now, if you start giving uh, black folks the ability to uh, make hiring practices or make hiring decisions and everything like that, that all of a sudden, you know, everything's going to be black and poor white folks are going to be left out in the cold. You know, basically what you guys are trying to do to us now for uh, in, a, in a large sample. So that's what white folks are afraid of. They're afraid of the same shit that they do to us, we're going to do to them. That all of a sudden now that, uh, <laughs> you know, if if every black player on the team decides that, you know what, I ain't going to be playing until you guys put a black guy as the head coach or unless I have, uh, uh, unless I make the decision to hire somebody, I ain't playing or I ain't doing nothing like that. And the owners acquiesce and they're like, yes, yes, okay, please, please, just don't leave us. You can have the power to hire the head coaches. Then all of a sudden now, the uh, black guys are just going to say, let's just hire any black guy that we see. No, 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 I'm here to tell white folks, no, that's not that's not the case with black people. I'm, I'm here to tell you, it might sound like a little bit strange or confounding to you guys, but black folks kind of want the same thing as white folks do, which is give me the best person that's going to be on the job. Give me the best person that's going to make my life, you know, fantastic. Give me the person that's going to maximize my abilities to make the most money. If he's black, great. If he's white, great. If he's a woman, if she's a woman, great. I mean, this notion that a lot of white folks have where it's like black folks are just going to go hire the first Negro that they see. Wrong. Wrong. Believe me, it would, it would look a lot, uh, it would be more diversity. No question about it. But uh, it wouldn't be just an overwhelming thing to where, you know, you got to be in the position that we're in now in terms of the way that we're being treated, the way that we're being passed over, the way that we're being disrespected, the way that uh, we're being uh, treated in the workplace. So, you know, white folks need to need to calm down with that where it's kind of like, well, you give those guys the power of shit. 
we're not going to be able to do anything because all they're going to be doing is ho is uh, hiring their homeboys. Okay, well, that's great. But, as I mentioned before, the problem in the NBA, seven black head coaches need to be better, needs to be improved. But unlike the, unlike Major League Baseball and unlike uh, football, where I don't really see a path for that happening anytime soon, unfortunately, I think in the NBA... That's a problem that will quickly be rectified. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Thought I'd give a little back, a little old school East Coast hip hop for you, rap music. Stuff that I grew up on back in the day. I can't, I, I can't, I just don't, I can't. The stuff that they're throwing out today. Okay, I mean, you know. Old man on the yard yelling. That's going to be me concerning this right now. I just don't get it. I remember a long time ago, I heard Russell, not a long time ago, but enough to where I had to disagree with him, Russell Simmons, the um, the uh, the rapist. Um, yeah, that Russell Simmons, Def Jam, Russell Simmons. Yeah, the one who likes to uh, sexually assault women. Yeah, that, that's him. Um, go watch the YouTube video of it. Uh, the, the HBO by the woman is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome documentary. Anyway, but he made a uh, comment that, you know, today's rap, the lyrics today are so much greater and they're so much better. Bull fucking shit. The stuff that I grew up listening to or the stuff that when I was in my prime in terms of listening to rap hip hop, when you're speaking about Eric B and Rakim and Redman and Big Pun and Big L and those guys, compared to the shit that's being played now, don't get it, man. I don't get it. I don't understand what the young folks are listening to or the younger folks are listening to. I don't get it because it's garbage. It's, it's, I don't, it, I mean, everything's the same damn thing. Every lyric is the same damn thing when you listen to it. Every song sounds the same. Nigga shit, motherfucking shit, nigga, bitch, motherfucking nigga shit, bitch, motherfucking. I mean, every other, hey guys, can you do me a favor? Could you do me a favor? Could you please say something else other than nigga? Every other word or every other rhyme is either nigga, bitch. Could you, could you diversify just a little bit? Could you put a little creativity into it? Could you think a little bit more outside the box? Could you expand a little bit other than shit, bitch, nigga, motherfucker, what a nigga, shit, bitch, motherfucker, nigga, shit, nigga, nigga, fuck, bitch, mother. It's like the same damn thing. No, nothing else. 
I mean, go back and listen to a little BDK, the B-I-G-D-A-D-D-Y-K-A-N-E. Go back and listen to, to a Heavy D. Go back and listen to Grand Pooba. Go back and listen to M. Go back and listen to, uh, um, um, oh shit. Go back and listen to, uh, I said Grand Pooba. Go back and listen to, um, oh, um, oh shit. <laughs> Master Ace. Go back and listen to, oh, the man, the guy, the streets of New York. I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. Coochie rap. Thank you. Go back and listen to Cool G Rap. Go back and listen to those guys, man. I don't mind cursing when you're doing lyrics. I don't mind it. I don't mind cursing at all. I don't even mind. I don't even mind the use of the word nigga. Don't don't mind it at all. But damn, man, can we be a little bit more creative with the lyrics? Because I grew up on lyrics, beats, lyrics, beats, lyrics. That's the thing. But the lyrics are the deal. For me, that's what makes that's what the foundation of rap and hip-hop is all about for me. It's about the lyrics. How good are your lyrics? How how genius are you of putting together lyrics? M, genius. Most deaf, genius. Big pun, genius. Rakim, genius. Biggie, genius. Because of their lyrics. That's what I fell in love with. I listen to this shit now, and it's just straight and another bullshit. Bitch, nigga, shit, motherfucking nigga, shit. I mean, every goddamn thing. Motherfucking shit, nigga, bitch, motherfucking nigga, shit, bitch, whore, bitch, nigga, fuck, damn. Hood and rat, nigga, fuck, bitch, nigga, shit, motherfucking nigga, shit. It's like, God, guys, just like, you know. And then, and then, and then our community wonders, because you, you have these white kids listening to this shit, and our community gets all bent out of shape and upset when these white kids start saying the word nigger all the time. Well, damn, if that's all y'all going to say, this is the music that they're listening to. This is what they're listening to when it comes to us. And we have no other. These white kids ain't listening. At least when I was growing up, <clears throat> we had New Edition. We had Aretha. We had Anita Baker. We had, we had other folks. So it wasn't like all we had was rap. I mean, we had Johnny Gill, we had Bobby Brown, we had other folks that we could listen to in terms of diversifying the music. Now, I can't tell you who's out there. I don't know who's out there in terms of R&B right now who's singing. Or at least when they're singing, they don't bring in a rapper, you know, <clears throat> a, you know, a singer featuring a rapper. And when the rapper comes on, it's, bitch nigga shit, motherfucking nigga shit, motherfucking nigga shit, motherfucker. It's like, God damn, I just, I can't, <clears throat> I can't deal. Buster Rhymes, you know, back in the day. I mean, that's what I grew up on, man. That's what I'm talking about. And now you got this shit out here today. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Or, as the rappers of today like to say, yo, bitch, nigga, motherfucker, Wendell Wallace, nigga shit, motherfucking bitch, nigga shit. Wendell's World of Sports, nigga, motherfucking shit. I'm talking about what's going on in the world of sports today, nigga shit, motherfucker. Okay. All right, here we go. One more week before the All-Star break, the Eastern Conference, taking a look at the Eastern Conference, look, the Western Conference really didn't get too much time to get into it. Utah Jazz playing the best basketball in the NBA right now. The continuation of who they brought back from last season, 
the fact they didn't spend too much time in the bubble, so their resting period was a little bit longer. Let's say a team like the Denver Nuggets, who seem to be struggling, a team like the Los Angeles Lakers, who are struggling right now, Dennis Schroeder not being there, Anthony Davis not being there. Um, we speak, we we take a look at the slow starts by teams like the Toronto Raptors. No, no favors done for them that they had to play in in Tampa rather than Toronto. But you know these guys or these teams right now who. We're in the bubble for an extended period of time, you know, are starting a little bit slowly. The Boston Celtics, I'll get to them in just a second. The Lakers, the Anthony Davis thing, slowing them down after a really good start. The Clippers, they've been good, but, you know, they're starting to get their legs a little bit more. They're in need of a point guard. Um, Denver, inconsistent. Milwaukee, inconsistent. Miami started off slow. They had injuries. They had to deal with COVID. So the Jazz are also benefiting from the fact that, look, they lost in the first round of the uh, playoffs. So they left the bubble a little bit early, which gave them a little bit more of a rest rest period than these other teams. But they're playing fantastic basketball. The way they're playing on offense, Rudy Gobert accepting his role, Donovan Mitchell elevating his game, Joe Inglis being the glue to everything on the offensive side that Chris, that, uh, um, uh, Quinn Snyder wants to put together the decision for those guys to start shooting the three ball more, using more of the Golden State Warriors, San Antonio Spurs, when they won championships, type of uh, ball rotation, making the extra pass, making the hockey assist. The The Jazz are, are playing fantastic. Now, are they going to be true championship contenders or are they going to be uh, the Milwaukee Bucks of a few years ago or the last couple of years with Giannis? Are they going to be like the Atlanta Hawks a few years ago where they won 60 games, had Jeff Teague as an all-star, Kyle Korver as an all-star, Josh Smith as an all-star, Al Horford as an all-star, and then ran into a superstar in his prime like LeBron and the Miami Heat or the Cleveland Cavaliers and got smoked in four games. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, are the Utah Jazz a regular season juggernaut or are they also built for the postseason. I say because of the ascension of Donovan Mitchell, I think he might need to go a little bit higher, that the Utah Jazz have a much better chance than some of these regular season champions who flame out in the um, in the postseason. Because while the offense for the Jazz is fantastic, ball movement and all that kind of stuff, they also have two bucket getters. Um, Donovan Mitchell being close to an elite bucket getter. And then they have a streaky bucket getter in Jordan Clarkson to where, look, man, when you're playing in the NBA playoffs and you're playing these games and you're playing against these teams and you're in the best four out of the sevens, you're, you're not going to out scheme anybody. Your teams know what you're running. Team knows what your counters are. So basically who's going to be able to say, give me the ball, even though I know they know what we're doing. I know that I can beat my guy, break down the defense, and give opportunities to myself or for others on the team, give them good looks. I think Donovan Mitchell is that guy. Showed it against Denver last season in the uh, bubble. And I think, again, he's been hot and cold. I mean, get the Lakers the other night. He was 4 for 16 or something like that. But just his presence, just his ability to uh, create for himself. And as I mentioned before, the six-man a guy who's vying for sixth man of the year, Jordan Clarkston, coming off the bench, another bucket getter, where it's kind of like offense is breaking down, give me the ball, I can make something happen. Uh, offense is stagnant, give me the ball, I can make something happen. We're not getting good looks, give me the ball against the set defense, I can make something happen for myself 
or for others and do it on a consistent basis. I think the Jazz have that type of player in Donovan Mitchell and to a lesser extent, Jordan Clarkston. So I think the Jazz have a much better chance in the playoffs than say the other regular season Warriors who were great in the regular season but flamed out in the playoffs. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Lakers struggling, Denver struggling on the Western Conference, uh, Portland, um, they're starting to turn things around just a little bit. Uh, Dame is uh, playing great basketball. C.J. McCollum, they need him to get back from injury. Uh, Zach Collins, somewhere, somehow down the road, they got to get him back and get him playing. Uh, same with Nurkic, who had missed most, a, a lot of time this season. So the way that uh, Lillard is playing, you've got a guy like uh, Gary Trent Jr., who has uh, provided a good uh, a good spark. You've got Carmelo Anthony, even at his advanced stage in terms of NBA years. He's been pretty consistent in what he's going to be able to give you. He's been a positive uh, help for that team, but they're going to need a little bit more from the players that they've been counting on over the last couple of years to uh, get back and do some things, mainly CJ, Zach Collins, and Yusuf Nurkic. So we'll see what happens with the Portland Trailblazers. But for the most part, if you take a look, it's going to come down to the Clippers and the Lakers. It's going to come down to health. It's going to come down to see what's going to be happening with Anthony Davis. It's going to see how the Lakers are going to manage LeBron's minutes. It's going to be able to uh, see what's going to be with Dennis Schroeder, getting those guys more acclimated once he gets back. And with the Clippers, I think they're going to be making a midseason move. I think they're going to be making a move for some type of point guard at the All-Star or at the uh, trade deadline. There's been speculation. There's been rumor mill gossip that Kyle Lowry might be on the move, the guard for the Toronto Raptors. And he's open to uh, going back home to Philadelphia and play. But the Lakers, or excuse me, the Clippers are also a team that would be very interested because the only thing that's stopping the Clippers right now is a point guard because they don't have one. They don't have one. Pat Beverly can't initiate the offense like a true point guard should. And when they need buckets and they need to uh, get into a set offense, who's going to do that for them? Paul George can't. Kawhi Leonard can't. Lou Williams can't. So who on that team, if they stand pat, is going to be able to do that? Well, nobody. So that's the only thing with the Clippers that I can see for those guys to improve on. But the Western Conference is the Western Conference. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So for the Eastern Conference, you take a look at the standings. The Philadelphia 76ers, still in first place, 22-11. and 11. Spent more time atop the Eastern Conference than any team this season in their conference. Are they favorites? Do you still like them over the Brooklyn Nets? Or if you are saying that the Brooklyn Nets are the favorites in the Eastern Conference, does the Philadelphia 76ers offer them the biggest challenge for the Nets to advance to the NBA Finals? The key, though, Ben Simmons. I know Embiid is playing at MVP level. I know they've gotten some uh, outside shooting from Steph Curry. I know that Tobias Harris has elevated his game to being a uh, number three guy of substance for a team that's looking to win an NBA championship. I know that they've improved from the head coaching position with uh, Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers, in there. But I think the key, the key, first of all, is going to be having the two main guys, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, be as healthy as possible. No... They can, they can deal with nagging injuries, but they can't deal with, well, no one can deal with debilitating injuries, but, I mean, we can't be having 
you know, Joel with some of the injury problems that he's had the last couple of seasons going into the playoffs. If the twosome of Simmons and Embiid can be 70, 75% going into the playoffs, Philadelphia is going to be legit. Of course, it'd be nice if Danny Green could be a little bit more consistent from the three-point line, but, you know, and, and if Philadelphia could get somebody who could be a bucket getter, that would also help their chances. But the key for the 76ers, I believe, is Ben Simmons. And he's and he's starting to play better. And there was talk that Ben Simmons had plateaued as a basketball player due to his due to his disregard for shooting the basketball outside of six feet and his uh, and his yearning not to want to get the basketball and make a play with the game on the line because of his apprehension of going to the foul line when the game really counts because of his uh, poor free throw shooting. Well, you know, Ben Simmons is starting to play better, and we found out now the reason for the slow start. He was coming off from having knee surgery last August and dealt with some knee soreness in early January. But now he's starting to play a lot better. I was very impressed uh, with him guarding Luka Doncic the other night, holding Luka to 19 points, four assists, and seven turnovers. So he brings, speaking of Simmons, he brings an invaluable component to the team. If he's not going to score 25 or 30, what he does from the defensive side of the ball is going to be invaluable. Because guess what? If the Philadelphia 76ers are going to make it to the NBA Finals, somewhere, somehow, they're going to have to go through Brooklyn. They're going to have to go through Boston. They're going to have to go through Milwaukee. They're going to have to go through Toronto. They're going to have to go through Miami. Those are some threats. And so you're going to need somebody who's going to be able to guard Kevin Durant and Giannis and Jimmy Butler and Malcolm Brogdon and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Pascal Siakam if need be. You have that guy in Ben Simmons. And nobody else... Nobody else in the Eastern Conference has that. Outside of Ben Simmons, there's nobody else who can be able who can, able to guard someone like uh, uh, a Jalen Brown or a Jason Tatum or a Giannis. Yes, you might have a situation where Bam out of body you might, but how much are you going to be asking him to uh, spend all of his energy guarding Giannis and still, you know, be responsible for the responsibilities that he has on the offensive side of the ball? I think as far as a two-way player is concerned doing this in the playoffs is going to be Ben Simmons. Yeah, Jimmy Butler can get away for a few minutes of guarding a Malcolm Brogdon or a Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown or a Pascal Siakam. He's not going to be able to do that for the entire time. That's not going to be his main deal. But Ben Simmons, that's going to be his guy. Ben Simmons says, just show me who the guard and I'll guard him. And I think that he can be quite effective against someone like a Durant or a Giannis. Not saying that he's going to stop him. You can't hold down Kevin Durant. I mean, you can't stop consistently Giannis getting to the basket or Jalen with the step-back threes or Tatum with what he does. But the you know best resistance in terms of a defender on those guys is Ben Simmons. So I think that's what he brings to the table. So again, I think the, the 76ers... If you say that the Brooklyn Nets are the favorites to make it out of the Eastern Conference, their biggest challenge, I think, is going to be the Philadelphia 76ers. And if you don't think that a team that, while getting better on defense, speaking of Brooklyn, still is horrendous as far as statistically is concerned. Now, they've been great. They're now in second place. 
They've won, what, eight games in a row? They've done this without Kevin Durant? James Harden playing great. Kyrie Irving, so far, so good. But are you really going to trust this team? We know about the flameout that James Harden has had, but he's, you know, being with the Houston uh, Rockets back in the day. Uh, we're going to go on the assumption that Kevin Durant is going to turn, is going to return and be fine when he does. These injuries that he has, this has nothing to do with his Achilles. This has something to do with his hamstring. Now, it might be having this something, it might be, you know, the injury to his hamstring might be because maybe he's overcompensating, thinking about the Achilles or whatever. So the Achilles injury might be playing a small role into the hamstring injury because the hamstring connected to the rib bone and the rib bone connected to the feet bone and the feet bone connected to the ankle bone and the ankle bone connected to the shin bone. But what I'm saying is that we're all going to go on the assumption that KD, once he gets over this latest injury, that he's going to go back to being the Kevin Durant that we saw the first uh, part of the season. Can that Kevin Durant, A, come back for any consistent amount of time, and B, is that Kevin Durant going to be available once the playoff starts, and C, if he's not, how much of an advantage do you give to Philadelphia if we have a hobbling less than 80% Kevin Durant, which can then lead to the questions about, okay, James Harden is going to be going back to the role that he had with the Houston Rockets in terms of being the guy that's going to be most responsible for the team advancing, and we've seen in big games in the playoffs, similar to Paul George, that uh, in the big moments, there has been ample evidence that James Harden doesn't step to the plate. That's a baseball analogy. That's James Harden doesn't step up and um, do what he's supposed to be doing. So those things are going to be interesting. The Milwaukee Bucks, speaking about the Milwaukee Bucks on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, 20 or 13 right now. Up and down, up and down, up and down. First half of the season. Look, they've won four games in a row after winning after losing five. But then again, let's take a look at the four games that they've won on this current winning streak. They beat Oklahoma City. They beat Sacramento. They beat Minnesota. <laughs> Great. And they beat New Orleans. And they beat them all at home. If you're a Milwaukee Bucks fan, what do you think? Are you are you pleased? Are you saying now the uh, good times are in front of us? That we're now back on Championship Avenue? That we're now back on title-winning lane, headed down to Championship Bill? What are we saying here? What are we doing here? Because if you take a look at the teams that they played during the losing streak, they lost at Phoenix, lost at Utah, lost at Oklahoma City, and they lost twice at Toronto. Taking a look at the competition... Uh, <laughs> thinking that, you know, glass half full or glass half empty here. I don't know. I think the uh, break, getting Drew Holiday back, will be great. The defense has been leaking, not the same as it was last season. And look, Giannis has been Giannis, which is good and bad. It's good because he's a great player. So Giannis playing at the level that he's playing in right now, that means that he's a top top seven, six, seven player in the game, wouldn't you say? Is he better than Jokic? Playing better right now. Playing better right now. Is he playing better than Jokic or LeBron or Embiid or Lillard? 
or Mitchell or Gobert or he's right in that mix. I don't he's right in that mix. So he's anywhere between four and eight, Giannis, in terms of the way he's playing right now. So that's good. That's a good part. The bad part is have you seen anything from Giannis which you say is an improvement from last season? Has he added any more new tools? Has he added any more to his game? He still can't shoot. A little bit better, maybe, possibly. But, you know, I, I didn't think Giannis was going to come back and be a 35% three-point shooter shooting five threes a game. But his jump shot still looks forced, unnatural, mechanic. Um, Still, as a defender, he's not going to guard that perimeter guy. You know, he's not going to guard the, he's going to guard the more of the uh, stretch fours or the back to the basket scores and not really the perimeter guys. He's good, but it's like he hasn't gotten any better or there hasn't been any significant change. And he's still a, either a three point, you know, top of the key three point shot guy or a guy who's going to try everything he can to get to the basket. There's no in between. I mean, if he could just forget, everybody's talking about three-point shot, three-point shot with Giannis. If I'm, I mean, if I'm Coach Bud, I'd be like, look, man, just develop your 18-footer. Just develop your 19-footer. Same thing with Ben Simmons. People are ripping Ben Simmons because he doesn't shoot a three-pointer. Fine. I don't care about Ben Simmons shooting a three-pointer. What I want him to do is be semi-consistent from 15 to 17 feet. The same thing with Giannis. They give him so much room that, hell, okay, don't shoot a three-pointer. But they're giving you so much room. They're giving you a, think about it, take a deep breath, you know, reflect on life, then go up for a shot without a hand in your face from the top of the key, from the right and left elbow extended. And he won't do it. He won't take that shot. You give him that room, he's going to plow, he's going to euro step, he's going to reverse pivot, he's going to spin and get to the basket. He's good at doing it. He's great at doing it in a regular season when you're playing the Wizards, when you're playing the Chicago Bulls, when you're playing the Charlotte Hornets, when you go out on the West Coast and you play the Sacramento Kings and you play the Houston Rockets and you play the Minnesota Timberwolves, fine. Yeah, you can go ahead and get 30, 35 doing that stuff. But when it's game five, game six, game seven against uh, the Miami Heat or against the Boston Celtics or against the Indiana Pacers, those opportunities aren't going to be there for you. The uh, Toronto Raptors. Those opportunities aren't going to be there as much. And we've seen that in the playoffs. DiVincenzo. Shaky. Chris Middleton, good. Good number two. But when was the last time you saw Chris Middleton? And this is the regular season. But when was the last time you see, you've seen Chris Middleton take over a game? Like, they're doing this with Giannis. Time for me to step up and do some things. Now, I've seen in the playoffs, he's put up good numbers. I've seen him put up 25, 27 or something like that. But has he ever had a game of great consequence to where it's like they saved us? Has he ever had like a Dane Lillard type moment in the playoffs? Has he ever had one of those type of deals? Now, not too many people have had Dane Lillard type moments where, you know, twice in Dane Lillard's career, he's ended series on buzzer beating threes. But still, I mean, Utah, unless Utah, Milwaukee is just, I don't know. I mean, as of right now, they've just seemed a plateau. Now, again, 
We'll see what happens when they get Drew Holiday back. But again, the same thing with the Brooklyn Nets. What kind of a player are we expecting when we get Drew Holiday back? And what are we going to be getting May 22nd when this playoff starts, when the second season starts? So there we go. There we go. Questions, questions, questions. Take a look outside of the top tier teams outside of um, Brooklyn. When you take a look at Milwaukee and Philadelphia, who are going to be those guys to get baskets when the offense breaks down? Right now, I guess the question would be, if it's not going to be Giannis, it would be Chris Middleton for Milwaukee. And if you're just not going to throw it in and shove it down the throats by giving it to Embiid, or maybe getting him out 12 feet, 18 feet, 21 feet from the rim and on the left or right side, clear out and let him be back himself in and do some work there. I mean, other than that, Tobias Harris, I guess it's going to have to be that guy to shot clock running down, make something happen. So we'll see. We'll see. You know here, uh, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. You know the team that's really looking forward toward the break the most? The Boston Celtics, currently in ninth place in the Eastern Conference, 15-17, two games behind five, uh, two games below 500. Lost three games in a row. They're three and seven in their last ten. Now they play Indiana tonight. This should be interesting. But, you know, this is a team that's got blown out by Atlanta. Lost on a buzzer beater in Dallas. Great shot by Luka. Blew a 24-point second-half lead to the New Orleans Pelicans when all of a sudden all they wanted to do was shoot jump shot after jump shot after jump shot after jump shot. Um, Boston Celtics fans, what are you thinking? What's your panic level right now? Are you panicked? Are you concerned? Who's, who are you going to blame? You're going to blame Danny Ainge, Brad Stevens, Kimba Walker. Who are you going to blame? Look, they played 15 games in 26 days. The core players, the key players on their team, which make up the foursome of Jason Tatum, Kimba Walker, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart, they've played a total of 28 minutes because of injuries. Only 28 minutes together. So we still don't know. Marcus Smart is still out with an injury. And Kimba Walker's been terrible. Shooting 37% from the floor through 16 games, 35% from three. He's making the decision for, he's making Michael Jordan look like a pretty good uh, uh, owner and decision maker. Because who would you rather have right now, Boston, for real? Would you rather have Kimba Kimba Walker at the amount of money that he's making or Terry Rozier? And look, the Gordon Hayward thing, that's not your fault. If Hayward wanted to leave, he wanted to leave, and he wanted to leave. He didn't want to be the fourth-tier guy behind Brown and Tatum. He saw the writing on the wall. So, Ainge shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be criticized for that. What he maybe should be criticized for is the fact that they had an opportunity to go ahead and trade him to Indiana and have him and have them get uh, Miles Turner in return, and they didn't want Miles Turner, so they let. Gordon Hayward walked for nothing. Now they got a trade exception, which is $28 million, But as Zach Lowe said many times, trade exceptions don't uh, make jump shots, don't uh, play defense, and don't contribute to winning on the floor night, at, night in and night out. So what are we going to do here, Boston? What's happening? What, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about this team right now? I'm seeing a team that's playing multiple bigs, whether it be Thompson and Daniel Tice. I'm seeing a team that's relying a lot on jump shots. 
I'm seeing a team that can't get to the rim on a consistent basis. I'm seeing a team right now that's hamstrung because, look, you're not going to do anything in terms of, uh, you know, you're not breaking up Tatum and you're not breaking up uh, uh, Jalen Brown. You're not doing that at all. But what do you have around him? You have a guy in Kemba Walker who's still trying to get his footing and is playing terribly. You have a thin bench. Who on your bench are you going to call? Jeff Teague has been absolutely horrible. He's been riding the pine, and now uh, Peyton Pritchard, the rookie from Oregon, is coming, and he's getting rotation minutes. Who else do you have? You have the rookie from Vanderbilt. He's been getting some minutes. I mean, there's no one on the bench of any type of consequence. So in the playoffs, yeah, you can get away with playing Tatum and Brown 38 to 42 minutes. But you can't do that in the regular season. In game 25 in in uh, in February, that's not going to work. So you guys need to go out and get somebody. There's some talk about possibly Harrison Barnes. There's some talk about possibly Aaron Gordon. But you guys need somebody. You guys need somebody. And you need a you need a shot maker. And you guys are stuck with Kimba Walker. I don't I don't know who you're going to trade him to, and I don't know who you can get back to uh, offset that. Like, I don't, I don't know where it's like, we need to trade Kemba Walker so we can get better. I don't know what trade is out there to get rid of Kemba Walker that's going to make you better. Because Kemba Walker, the way he's playing right now, I hate to say this, is playing like he's damaged goods. So a team that's going to be wanting Kemba Walker, if you, okay, we'll take your damaged goods as long as you take our damaged goods. So what's the big deal? How is that going to be better? Their damaged goods is going to come over to Boston and all of a sudden be contributing goods? Don't see it that way. Don't see it that way. But, again, let's get everybody healthy for Boston. Let's get that foursome in there. Let's see what Danny's going to do. This is not a situation where Brad Stevens, no, the team isn't tuning out Brad Stevens. No, Danny Ainge hasn't lost his touch. Even though you look back on it now, the trade that was supposed to signify that Boston was going to be an elite championship team for the next 10 to 15 years, that trade way back when where they traded Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett to the uh, Brooklyn Nets. When, Pok- when uh, what was it, P- Pokerev or Pokeraj or somebody, the Russian billionaire, was still owning the team and he wanted the team to win right now. So they went ahead and traded a couple of first-round picks for uh, to get uh, Garnett and Pierce. And Memphis was supposed to be terrible when they made their trade. So Boston had Memphis's first-round pick. They had Brooklyn's first-round pick. And that was supposed to be picks or you know, valuable assets that was going to make sure that Boston was going to be a top-tier team for a decade and a half. And what happened? They didn't get Anthony Davis. They didn't get Paul George. They didn't get Jimmy Butler. They got Kyrie Irving. And they got him for, what, two years? And they let him walk for nothing. They got Al Harford. What did they get for Al Harford when he left? For Philadelphia, free agency. Absolutely nothing. They got Gordon Hayward. A big free agent signing. What did they get for Gordon Hayward after he left to go to Charlotte? Absolutely nothing. And during that time, for Boston, when they had that capital, when they had those type of players on that team, what did the best thing that they did? Game 7 Eastern Conference Final Law to uh, Cleveland on their home floor. That was the best they did during that era. So I hate to say it that, and look, you know, you got Jalen Brown, and you got Jason Tatum. Fantastic. But other than that, this Boston team right now doesn't look like a team that's going to be 
combined for championships for the next 10 or 15 years. You put all of that capital on, or most of that capital on Kyrie Irving, and you got absolutely nothing for it. It's almost like you had the first, it's almost like you had consecutive number one picks and you whiffed on both. When you take a look at what you did uh, compared to um, having those number, having that draft capital and what turned out to be. You traded Isaiah Thomas for Kyrie Irving. And that was a bust. That was a bust. Kyrie Irving was supposed to be the guy, and he wasn't. And you got him for and he left for nothing. So, tough blow for the Boston Celtics. But, hey, man, you got two young guys who are developing that chemistry together that can win you championships. Maybe not this year, maybe not the year after. But, look, you got two young guys who are prime. So, the hard part's already done. You got foundational players that can win you championships. Now, Danny Ainge, what are you going to do to surround those two guys with players, with role players that can uh, help you win a championship? Right now, as we speak, the Kimber Walker deal, Kimber Walker deal, not looking great. What else are you going to do to align those two players, Brown and Tatum, with players that can win you championships? Ready for war, Joe? How you wanna blow these spot? I know these dirty cops that'll get us in if we murder some wop. Hop in your helmet, the punishers ready. Meet me and Beatles with noodles, we'll do this do while he's slurping spaghetti. Everybody kiss the fucking floor, Joe. We crack, fuck them all if they move. Noodles shoot that fucking whore. Dead in the middle of little, literally little. Did we know that we riddle to middle? Man, didn't do diddly. Here to be a cold day and how the day I take it now. Make no mistake, for real, I wouldn't hesitate to kill. I'm still a fat one that you love to hate. Catch you at your mother's waist. Smack you, then I whack you with my stuff, Joe. I rub your face off the earth and curse your family's children like Amity feeling Joe, the nerves in your cavity filling. Insanity's building a pavilion in my civilian. It can't be the anarchy that humanity's filling. I'm feeling without remorse, who's willing to out your boss forever and take all the chatter like child support. I support punning anything he does, anything he loves. loves. A brother from another mother sent for the above. A dark nigga just like me, one of the best might be. Even better, leaving niggas kneeling on their right knee. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Hello. Namaste. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Que pasa? Mi amigos, mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Ah, bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Beautiful day on a Friday afternoon. Getting ready. You know, one thing is that you can watch NBA. I live in a wonderful area because I get to watch the Lakers and the Clippers, all of their games if I wanted to. And with the NBA, um, I don't need the NBA League Pass because I got NBA TV, you got ESPN, you got TNT. So basically, you can watch a doubleheader seven days a week. And you can do it locally because I got the Laker channel out here. I've got Fox Sports West where I can watch the uh, Clippers. Both of those teams on the stations that they uh, they play their games, you can watch the replay. Also, Monday you have NBA TV. Tuesday you have games on TNT. Wednesday you have the ESPN game. Thursday, you have TNT. Friday, you have ESPN doubleheader. Saturday, you have uh, an ESPN game uh, in primetime. And Sunday, you have the 
ESPN game, and the Lakers always play on Sunday. So for me, I can watch the NBA seven days a week. The thing is, though, and you got Georgetown and others, the thing is, though, is like, I don't want to watch the NBA every single fucking day. I just, I love the NBA. I love it with everything that I've got. But I want to do something else. I, I really do. I mean, I want to watch the NBA a lot. But to do it, to consume it all the time, it's like, yeesh. So I'm thinking to myself, I've got all of these. I've got Netflix, some shows on Netflix. On my list for Netflix, I think I have like 30 shows that I want to watch. I haven't watched Dolomite yet. I haven't watched The Irishman yet. I haven't watched uh, any of the Dave Chappelle specials yet. I want to rewatch You Killed Malcolm X, and I want to rewatch uh, the Sam Cooke documentary. I want to rewatch the uh, Ted Bundy. I want to watch the Nia Simone uh, documentary. I want to watch the Cecil Hotel documentary again. There's so much stuff I want to watch, and there's some stuff that I DVR'd. There was a special months ago about the Lion Sisters. If you don't. If you don't remember that case, the Lion Sisters were abducted back in the early 70s, mid-70s from uh, Wheaton Shopping Center. And it was a place right there in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I grew up. And I remember there were two things from my childhood in terms of the boogeyman type of deal um, growing up. Number one, when Wayne Williams was over there in Atlanta murdering children or the Atlanta child murderers. I remember my parents were just like, you know, child murderers, Atlanta child murderers. That's the reason why we're not letting you do this. We're not letting you do that. And it's like, Mom, that stuff is being done in Atlanta. All right. You know, I might be six or seven years old and I might not be the smartest kid in the world. But, you know, I do know the proximity between Atlanta and D.C., the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. So I don't think Wayne, of course, we didn't know it was him. I don't think Wayne in between killing kids in Atlanta is driving up I-95 to uh, D.C., and doing the same thing down there. But I just remember, you know, my parents were like, you know, Atlanta child murderers, this, that, and the other. So that was like the number, that was the first boogeyman. But the second boogeyman was always the Lion Sisters. When I would want to go to the mall, or I was with the mall, when I was, you know, in the mall with my parents, and my mom, you know, always hold, held my hand and all this kind of stuff, and made sure that I was, you know, within distance. You know, when I was a little kid and it was like, you know, why? And it was like, well, you know, this is the same place where the Lion Sisters got abducted. And uh, for a long time, never knew what happened to them and presumed that they were dead. Because, you know, for 30 years or 35 years or something like that, they were around the same age as me. So, you know, for the folks and for my neighborhood, kids in my neighborhood and everything like that, it was always, you know, Wheaton Plaza always had this distinction of, you know, the Lion Sisters, the Lion Sisters. Well, see... Recent in recent years, they've actually found out, you know, what happened to them and who killed them and all this kind of stuff. So I know that the Discovery Channel or the Investigative Discovery Channel had a uh, special on that, which I uh, DVD'd and I've been trying to uh, watch. But because of the games, like, oh, this game is on, oh, that game is on, oh, this team is playing, oh, that guy is playing, I really haven't carved down enough time to uh, go ahead and watch those type of things. So I'm trying to do my best to uh, take out about three or four hours to uh, just catch up on all the things that I missed. One of the things that I would love to do is just take a weekend of just no sports. Like the NBA goes dark, uh, just no news at all. Georgetown doesn't play or something like that. Or they all play in the morning or something like that. Just give me like two days of eight to ten hours of me just trying to catch up on all of the things that I want to see. 
I want to, uh, as I mentioned before, all of the Netflix shows that I want to rewatch and watch uh, for the first time. So, yeah, let's poor Wendell, poor me. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. College football news. Coach Deion Sanders made his collegiate football coaching debut this past weekend for Jacksonville State. Prior to the game, Sanders got a visit from former Dallas Cowboys teammate and fellow football Hall of Famer Troy Aikman that Sanders said moved him to tears. Very emotional. The Tigers started their season with a dominant win, 53-0, at home against Edward Watts College, an NAIA school. I think it was an NAIA Division II school on Sunday. Jackson State season was postponed, of course, in the fall after the FCS decided to move their season to the spring because of COVID-19. Their eight-game schedule started on Sunday. Sanders and Jackson State will continue their season next or this this uh, coming uh, tomorrow at home against Mississippi Valley State. Can't wait for that one. The story of the game, because look, beating Edwards College 53 to nothing, a game that was, of course, supposed to be, you know, I mean, it did what it was supposed to do. You know, woohoo, Jackson State, this, that, and the other, you know, got some attention and all that kind of stuff. But the story after the game was Deion Sanders saying that he was robbed of his wallet, his watches during the first game at Jackson State as a head coach. Here's what uh, Coach Prime had to say about that. Right now, because that mixed emotions. One, kids play really well. While the game was going on, somebody came in and stole every darn thing I had in my locker room. Oh the coach's office. Oh, my God. Yeah. Credit cards, wallet, watches. Thank God I had all my necklaces. How? So when I talk about quality, raising the standards, that goes for everyone, man. Not just the people on the field, not just the coaches, not just the teachers, not just the faculty, but that's everybody, security in everybody. So how do you think it feels coming back after just teary-eyed because the guys who presented me with the game ball, one of the best moments I've ever had in my professional sports career emotionally. And then you go into your locker room, your coach's office to digress, and you notice and you don't even have a phone to call your mama, to call your girl, to call your, your kids because it's been stolen. You don't even have the, the scully hats that you wore here. So that's what he said. While the game was going on, somebody came in and stole every darn thing I had in the locker room. Front of, uh, coach's office, credit cards, wallet, watches. Thank God I had on my necklace. How do you think it feels? Coming back teary-eyed. The guys just presented me with the game ball. One of the best moments that I've ever had in my career. And you notice you don't have a phone to call your mama, your girl, your kids. Because it's been stolen. He belongs. Uh, yeah. I, I can understand the initial, like, are you fucking kidding me? Seriously? I'm at a historically black college. Really? And y'all going to treat me like this? Really? 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 
don't, I, I, no, 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 no. In this situation, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear about no white folks. No, I don't want to hear about Trump. No, 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 no. I go down to a goddamn black, historically black university college, and this shit happens to me. I get my shit stolen. Seriously? Really? Of all places. His belongings were the only ones stolen from the locker room. So, <clears throat> I did like the fact that when they were, uh, when Dion was uh, stating that, the folks, the, the reporters in the background, oh Lord. Mm, oh no. That's true, y'all, because you know that shit's going to make the news. <laughs> you know that nonsense is going to make the news. The irony, the uh, irony of it. The fact that here's a man going down to a historically black college, getting the team win, and guess what? Like every other white nationalist, Trump supporter, whatever, like, yeah, that kind of figures. All black college, and he gets his shit stolen. Yeah, how about that? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened? The people who stole it, were they from Chicago? No, I guess not, because they probably would have shot him and then stolen the shit. That type of ignorance. That type of bigotry. That type of bigotry. That type of stupidity. Fuck. So, yeah, I can understand why he was just like, God damn. And again, his was the only one stolen. Damn, man. Really. So, that was the initial thought. So, what Jackson State official told reporters regarding the matter, he said, Sanders' property wasn't stolen, but misplaced by security by a JSU staffer. Um, and Dion got his stuff back. In the official statement from the university regarding the incident, this is from Ashley Robinson, who is the vice president and athletic director, said, immediately following our win today, several items belonging to Coach Prime, Coach Prime, geez, were taken from the locker room. Those items were quickly recovered and returned. While we consider this an isolated incident, we are thoroughly reviewing security protocols to ensure this does not happen again. However, we refuse to let this dampen the victory of our JSU Tigers who have worked hard for this moment. We want to enjoy this time as we look forward to more game-winning celebrations in the future. <laughs> Dion was like, no, 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 uh-uh. No, not having it, not having it. He responded on Twitter by saying he did not believe him. He tweeted an explanation that his assistant caught the alleged thief in the act and that there was no miscommunication, my man, at all. Quote, no miscommunication, my man, at all. So, I look, I can understand because since moving to uh, Jackson in December, this is the second time the Sanders has had his property stolen from him. Someone stole his boombox from his car. And then when they found out it was Dion's boombox, they uh, returned, returned the property to him. So, look, man, I can understand at the beginning. And I can understand where Dion's like, man, really? I mean, this is some bullshit right here. I mean, you know, we talk about this. We talk about how the advantages that a black man, that a black kid, that a black person has going to a historically black university. I'm trying to do my part to bring some type of recognition. I'm trying to bring some type of shine. I'm trying to bring something to this program, to this university, to black colleges in totality, to this conference as a whole. And this is the way y'all going to treat me down here? This is the way y'all going to do this to me the second time that I've been stolen? That something that's been stolen from me? 
So here I am talking about I'm around my own people. I can do this. I can do that. There's a comfortability. There's a type of security. There's this type of understanding that I don't get when I go to the predominantly white schools and not the faith of bullshit that I have to face. Going to a school that's predominantly white, me being one of the few black folks on campus, and some of the things I have to go through, some of the negatives I have to deal with, some of the stupidity that I have to go through, and then I come down here around my own people, and I get my shit stolen not once but twice? In a matter of a few months? We haven't even hit double figures in weeks since I've been down here, and already my shit's been stolen not once but twice? I can see where Dion had that type of attitude. Then you have the AD talking about, well, you know, miscommunication, and we're going to look into it, but hooray, we won the game. Fuck you. No, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh, no. No, 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 no. Don't try to mitigate this. Don't try to lessen this. No, my shit got stolen. And this ain't the first time my shit has got stolen. So I can understand Dion having that type of attitude. I can understand Dion having that type of uh, response. He's done a lot to make an impact, at least for the football team since being named a head coach. Their Jacksonville State's 2021 class is ranked 84th nationally and is tops in the FCS ranks at the torchbearer in the uh, SWAC, the SWAC Conference. That's according to uh, 24-7 Sports. You know, he's had a group littered with JUCOs and FBS transfers along with incoming freshmen. So he's bringing the talent. He ain't going to be competing with the Ohio States and the Clemson and the Alabamas, of course. But in terms of the space and the environment that he's in and the conference that he's in and the type of competition that he's going to be playing against, he's done a damn good job. I don't know how long Deion Sanders is going to be down in Jacksonville State. I don't know if this is going to be like an Isaiah Thomas when he went down to uh, Florida International type of deal where he's just <clears throat> where he's just doing this to do a reality show, get a little seasoning as a coach so he can go ahead and go to a bigger gig. I don't know if he's using Jackson State. I don't know if Jackson State is using him. I don't, I don't know any of this stuff. But if they're both using each other, they can both be used in a positive way. Dion can use this as a stepping stone to get him, get him some recognition, to get him something put on tape of him being a coach, something to put on his resume so he can bolt the first time that he gets a better, more visible job, a better job. Maybe ultimately he is eyeing to get the uh, Florida State job, head coaching job in the next five to six years, and he's going to use Jackson State as the stepping stone to get there. Maybe he is doing that. Maybe. All of this stuff about I want to help these guys and have these guys get degrees and become professionals and uh, solid members of the community and this, that, and the other. Maybe all that is just for show and bullshit and nonsense. Maybe it is. But you know what? Maybe Jacksonville, maybe uh, Jackson State is sitting up there talking about, yeah, we know what, what, what Prime is doing. The more that Prime is on television, the more that Prime is doing these type of things, the more that, that's a free info commercial for us. That's free advertising for us. And if we can get the football team to a place where they can be good and they can, you know, deal with the Hamptons and they can deal with the uh, other schools, well, the Hamptons and the MEAC. But what I'm saying is if they can, because Rambling hasn't been good for a while, and Southern hasn't been good for a while, but if Dion Coach Prime can get uh, Jacksonville State to where, or uh, uh, get get them to where... um, you know, they're the king of the swack. That helps with our enrollment. That helps with our fundraising. 
That helps with our donation. That helps with all of those type of things. So yeah, if I'm JSU, maybe we're, we're, we're being used. Well, you know, Jackson State, we're being used. Well, we're going to use, we're going to use Dion while we're being used. So we're going to get used together. This is a group using that's going on right now. <clears throat> so I think it can be advantageous for both. Here's where, here's where Mr. Sanders, here's where Dion needs to be a little bit careful because in his, Diet, no, I wouldn't call it a diatribe. The man was angry. He had a right to be angry. In his um, lecturing or his uh, dressing down uh, those at the university because he felt that his his uh, his stuff was stolen. And I, I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know. I, I have no idea. So I'm not going to say Dion is right. Jackson State is right. I don't know. I have no idea. But you need to be careful because he said something where it's kind of like, whoa. He talked about raising the standards from everyone, not just the people on the uh, field, not just the coaches, not just the teachers, not just the facility, but everybody. Security, everybody. <clears throat> Dion, <clears throat> leave, the, leave the faculty and the teachers alone. First of all, they didn't steal your shit. Second of all, um, when we're speaking about HBCUs, this ain't Florida State. This ain't Alabama. This ain't North Carolina. This ain't Duke. This ain't Iowa. This ain't Oklahoma. And what I'm trying to say is, these HBCUs, the head coach don't run shit. Okay? I mean, the, the, the teachers and the faculty uh, at the HBCUs, they have strength. They have pull. They have importance. See, this ain't Alabama where Nick Saban can go ahead and basically control an entire community, control a, an entire state. I mean, this ain't something where Mike Krzyzewski walks on the campus and when he says jump, the administrators say how high. I mean, this isn't something to where, you know, the Iowa wrestling program where, you know, the coach comes in and the faculty feels an inferior, inferiority toward them. No, this ain't one of those. So when you go out there and you start talking about the, the coaches or you start talking about the teachers and the faculty need to step it up, need to raise the standards, how, how do you know what the standards are, Dion, concerning the faculty and the teachers? Have you been in any of the classrooms? Have you met any of the professors? Have you met any of the teachers? Have you done any of those type of things? Have you reached out? Have you done those type of things? What evidence do you have that the faculty and the teachers need to be need to need to raise the standards? What standards need to be read, need to be raised, Dion? Now, if you're talking about security, absolutely. If you're talking about the situation dealing with people stealing your stuff, absolutely. Those things need to be standard. Even if it was a situation where um, it wasn't a robbery. This was just that the, <clears throat> it was true to protect your jewels and your valuables that security took it and they misplaced it. That's, that's fireable. That's ridiculous. And have that not be communicated to you to where you're going to go out in a press conference with national folks all looking at this and talk about you got your shit stolen? And that's derelict on uh, Jackson State's duties regardless if they were doing it in good faith, if they were trying to protect your jewels and everything. The fact that they misplaced it, your wallet, your credit card, your phone, 
the fact that they misplaced it or the fact that they led you to believe that it was stolen? What is this, the Keystone Cops? What what the hell is this? Jay Santos and the Citizens Auxiliary Police? What the fuck are we talking about here? Unacceptable. Inexcusable. So at the very best, Jacksonville State, the security is at very best uh, amateurist and derelict in their duties. Un- unprofessional. That's at the very best. At the very worst, they're thieves. So in that regard, yeah, they need to step up their game. Jacksonville, Jackson State needs to, I keep calling them Jacksonville, Jesus. Jackson State needs to step up their game. JSU needs to step up their game. But don't be bringing in the teachers. Don't be bringing in the faculty. Don't be bringing in them folks. Because them folks, what they're doing, Dion, again, especially at a HBCU, is going to have much more impact than what you're going to have on, what you're going to have on those kids as a coach. So leave the faculty, unless you've been in the classroom, and unless you've been to some meetings, and unless you've been in that space and talked to them people and did your research and did all those type of things, unless you took the time to do that, leave the teachers in the faculty of the HBCU schools alone, or at least at JSU, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Smooth B. Together we are nice and smooth with pure and harmony. And just in case you wonder what we're wrong, we'll say that we're sorry for keeping you waiting so long. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Last segment of the program. Hope that you're still doing well. Thank you very much for hanging on, hanging on. All of this good stuff that we're doing. Uh, let me see here. Yes, um, I'm recording this on. I'm recording this on February 26, which means that by the time I get put up another podcast record another podcast it will be probably march 1st 2nd somewhere around there so black history month will be over officially recognized as black history month um and during this time i wanted to give a special dedication to the athletes and public figures that i've talked about on my podcast concerning the awareness this is just a situation where look you're not going to be hearing these names in the school books you're not going to be hearing these names uh, anywhere else. So for those who are listening to my podcast, for those who have reached this point, this is just my way of just doing a little bit of educating, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of something to where, you know what, when I got the idea to do this, I didn't want to do Jackie Robinson and I didn't want to do Muhammad Ali. I didn't want to do people who was like, well, yeah, you guys know 
about Jackie Robinson. You guys know about Muhammad Ali. I mean, maybe there's some nooks and crannies that I could bring up to where, you know, you didn't, you might not know about Ali or Jackie Robinson, but you know, those are pretty recognized in terms of breaking it down. There's been books, there's been documentaries, there's been shows, there's been everything, movies, whatever, dealing with Jackie Robinson. So for me to bring in there and talk about Jackie Robinson being the first player to break the color line in Major League Baseball and Muhammad Ali, everything that he did, well, you, you guys know that, and there's ample information. If you didn't know that you could uh, go ahead and YouTube and Google and everything and find out many things concerning those heroes, concerning those American icons, concerning those legends. So I didn't want to go there. So I wanted to maybe go ahead and talk about some folks that people might not have a a, a, a real understanding about. So when I brought up, for instance, Jack Johnson being the first black heavyweight champion and the fight of the century, April, uh, July 4th, 1910 with Jim Jeffries, I wanted to go ahead and talk about how strong and how important being the heavyweight champion was at that time. And the fact that so many people did not want to have the heavyweight champion be represented by a black man because at the turn of the century and moving forward for the next, I don't know, maybe three or four decades, when you spoke about the heavyweight champion of the world, you spoke about the most powerful man on the planet. You spoke about power. You spoke about those type of things. So naturally, you would want to have that moniker being referred to a white man. Because if the heavyweight champion was white, that would mean white means might means right. So if you had a black man, all of a sudden now, not only would that be thrown into so many different directions, but also you're speaking about maybe giving those who have been downtrodden, maybe those who have been oppressed, maybe those who have been enslaved, maybe those of them who have been kept down and during that time for good reason, because the white man at that time was perceived to be superior to the black man just based on the color of their skin, the fact that the black man would then hold that title of heavyweight champion, which means them being the most powerful man on the planet, well, white folks absolutely lost their mind. And the fact that during that time, Jack Johnson was not what we would call a good Negro at that time. He was a guy that ran around and flaunted the fact that he had sex with white women, that he would marry white women, that he would be so ostentatious and audacious in terms of the way that he conducted himself, his dress, his manners, the fact that he did basically everything he could to uh, upset the white man, everything that he could do to basically, you know, shove it in their face in terms of I'm the heavyweight champion, I'm the greatest, I'm the most powerful man on the planet, and I'm black, suck my Johnson. Basically, that was his attitude, and white folks just could not deal with it and just lost their mind, which... For having them turn to then undefeated Jim Jeffries, who retired at the uh, turn of the century undefeated. He beat the great John L. Sullivan. He beat Bob Fitzsimmons. He was considered at the time the most powerful man on the planet when he retired again undefeated. So he was labeled the great white hope by the by our society because, you know, we had to do something. They had to do something to get the heavyweight belt off of Jack Johnson. And they could still say that, well, you know, I mean, yeah, Jack Johnson holds the belt, but the most powerful man on the planet still is Jim Jeffries. And Jim Jeffries is really the heavyweight champion of the world because if you remember five, six, seven years ago, Jim Jeffries retired. He didn't lose the heavyweight belt, so he retired, so which means that he never really lost the heavyweight belt. So he really is truly the heavyweight champion. So forget Tommy Burns and forget all those other guys who came after. 
or in between Jeffries retiring and Johnson winning the championship in Sydney, Australia back in 1908, the real champion is still Jim Jeffries. Well, that's the reason why they had to have that fight. And they offered Jim Jeffries a boatload of money, $100,000 at the time, which was a huge amount of money for a fight. And uh, so they fought. And when Jack Johnson beat the shit out of Jim Jeffries over 14, 15 rounds, it was clearly now a situation where, guess what? The heavyweight champion of the world, the most powerful man of the world, is a black man. And that sent so many feelings and emotions. The fact that the civil war that we had since the true civil war in 1865 between the North and the South was a semi-civil war, civil war between blacks and whites when Jim Jeffries lost in the uh, fight of the century to Jack Johnson's. There were racial fighting in you know all across this country of ours. So basically, Jack Johnson was Muhammad Ali before Ali. I mean, Jack Johnson was the most beloved or hated man on the planet for the first decade of the 20th century. I mean, he was right up there with kings and queens and presidents in terms of his influence, in terms of his notoriety, both good and bad. So most people don't know about that. There wouldn't have been a Muhammad Ali if it wasn't for Jack Johnson. He was one of the founding members, shall we say. He was that first foundation for uh, someone like a Malcolm X, someone like for the uh, Civil Rights Movement and Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens and all those type of things. He was the he was the first one to start breaking down that barrier, or he was the first one of an athlete of influence of uh, breaking down that 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 notion that uh, white was right in might and correct in all things. Before Jesse, before Joe Lewis, before Fritz Pollard, before before Paul Robeson. Before all those guys, before Jackie Robinson broke the color line, all of that stuff. The first the first step toward all of that, which eventually led to where we are right now, was uh, by, from an athlete standpoint, was Jack Johnson being the first black heavyweight of all time. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to educate those on that situation. Joe Lewis, the greatest and most accomplished heavyweight in history. When you speak about him, holding that belt for 12 years and the 25 defenses that he had, one of the foundations of the civil rights movements. Again, he was the guy that um, counseled Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson had a temper. Jackie Robinson was not one of these good Negroes who was going to have someone call him a nigger. He was going to sit back and be like, all right, you call him a nigger, he was going to punch you in the jaw. He was much more, he was much more, well, the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X wasn't violent, but he he had much more of the philosophy of Malcolm, which is, you know, if you put your hands on me, I'm going to defend myself. And if I have to defend myself physically, then I'm going to go ahead and do that. He was more of that type of philosophy than he was in terms of Martin Luther King, which is nonviolence. It's, it's, it's really interesting, the fact that Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X did not get along, did not see eye to eye at all. I mean, Jackie thought Malcolm was a blowhard and turned up, yeah, you talk a big game, but, you know, where are you? But when black folks get, you know, lynched and when black folks are in churches and getting bombed, where are you at? You're up there in New York talking about black folks need to do this and black folks need to do that and black folks need to defend themselves and black folks ain't going to take no shit, really? Well, I don't see you down south. I don't see you down here where these uh, black demonstrators who are fighting for a 
peace and freedom and equality are getting hosed and getting bitten by dogs and all those type of things. All you're doing is sitting there talking about, ha, 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 what the hell are you doing doing that type of shit? I mean, if you're so big and bad, why don't you bring your black ass down here and do something about it? And Malcolm, on the other hand, was like, well, you know, Jackie, you're just one of these, you know, puppeteers. You know, you're just one of the, uh, you're just, you're, you're all talk or no action, basically. So those two guys, Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X, did not like each other, did not see eye to eye with each other. And, you know, Malcolm was killed in 65, so there was never any type of understanding. Malcolm and Martin Luther King, at, at times, didn't see eye to eye. You know, Malcolm X thought that Martin Luther King was just a puppet. Martin Luther King was just a guy who just, you know, that nonviolence bullshit was not going to get him anywhere. He was acquiescing. He was bowed down. He was kowtowing to the white man. And, you know, Martin was well like, you know, sorry, Minister Malcolm. That's the way I run things. Violence ain't the answer. Nonviolence is. Only later, once Malcolm left that cult known as the Nation of Islam, it started to expand and started to grow in his thoughts and feelings, did he see what Dr. King was speaking about and came to the realization that there's more than one way to <clears throat> to gain equality. So how did they get into all this? Oh, yes, basically talking about Joe Lewis was the fact that all of this, all of this was on the, were limbs on the tree, which was Joe Lewis, because Joe Lewis was the first guy to go ahead and make it acceptable for a black man to be a hero. Before that, nigger this, nigger that, this, that, and the other, and, you know. But when Joe Lewis came in and did what he did, especially with <clears throat> Max Schmeling, the fight in June of 1936 or 1938, 1938, yes, he lost the uh, initial fight with Max Schmeling in 1936. He got the rematch once, she, once he won the heavyweight championship in 1938. The world was going into a war hitler was making his move and aryan nation and the you know taking over of the world because the aryan nation was the most superior how about that seems like the aryan nation and white folks seem to have a lot of common when it comes to uh their superior and all that kind of stuff back in those days but um you know germany was a real threat and hitler using max schmeling was an example of their power well being the heavyweight champion of the world and still having that title of being the greatest, the most powerful man on the planet, it came to our country. We had Joe Lewis, so it was a matter of we were going to find out who exactly was the more powerful country in that fight. Was it going to be Germany or was it going to be the racist, divided, ignorant states of America, a.k.a. America? <laughs> so round one, Joe Lewis beat the living shit out of him. And um, that was the end of that. And it was interesting. I think I said this in my podcast when I was speaking about Joe Lewis, that uh, his son, Joe Lewis Barrow, was being interviewed. And he said, man, it was amazing because I had ran into those who were in the, who were in Auschwitz, who were um, in the concentration camps. And when they found out that Joe Lewis had beaten Max Schmeling, that gave them hope. That gave them strength that they were going to survive the Holocaust because this notion, this fallacy that the Aryan nation was the most powerful person in the world was so destroyed. That notion was that myth was so obliterated 
by what Joe Lewis did in such savage, devastating fashion that it gave them the hope and the desire to keep moving because a black man had beaten a German over in New York City. Powerful. Powerful. And even after Joe Lewis retired from the ring, deemed an American hero, as much as an American hero as a black man can be in the country at that time, he still fought for civil rights. He was the guy who integrated the, uh, the, the army. And as I mentioned before, he was the guy who also mentored Jackie Robinson when he was in the, uh, when he was in the armed forces during that time. He was the guy, Joe Lewis, who helped integrate the game of golf, the professional game of golf. So American hero buried in uh, national, uh, Arlington national cemetery. Speaking of Joe Lewis. So, you know, I had to bring him out. You, you don't, you don't hear that type of stuff during Black History Month. You don't hear that type of stuff in your high school uh, uh, history classes. You don't hear any of that stuff in the schools. You don't hear any of that. You don't hear the, the, the contributions that Joe Lewis made to this world, to this country. You don't hear that. My job, for those who listen to this podcast, to uh, educate you on those type of things. Jim Brown, also another special dedication I gave as far as uh, speaking about uh, great Americans for Black History Month who paved the way for this country to be where it is now. Um, one of the greatest athletes in the 20th century, considered a legend not just in football, but also lacrosse. I think he's in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame, along as well as the Football Hall of Fame. First black action hero in Hollywood. First interracial love scene with, uh, with Raquel Welch that just destroyed America in terms of, holy shit, you know, creator of the American program, which helps black youths that are in trouble. A guy who, you know, created the Alley Summit. I mean, Jim Brown is unbelievable. Bill Russell, the greatest winner in team sports, won 11 championships in 13 years, including eight championships in a row. First black head coach in team sports history. Champion of civil rights. You know, those are the people that I wanted to speak about. Those are the people that I wanted to uh, discuss and educate on. And other members and others remember this month in my podcast, uh, Mary Wilson, again, she died at the age of 76, one of the founding members of the Supremes. Diana Ross is the only one left because Flo Ballard died in 1975, I believe it was, at the age of 32. But the sexy Flo Ballard, she died in uh, 75. And the other original member, Mary Wilson, the extremely beautiful and attractive Mary Wilson, till the very end at 76 died, at least Diana Ross as the only one. So I wanted to uh, bring that out. And also did a podcast a couple of days ago, the 21st, the assassination of Malcolm X. Wanted to uh, have that remembrance 56, day, 56 years ago that happened. So I wanted to go ahead and do that. So just, you know, special dedications for, you know, those heroes. And others that need to be mentioned. I mean, I wish I could do one on Arthur Ashe and Jackie Joyner-Kersey, Jesse Owens, Fritz Pollard, Jackie Robinson, Ali, Kurt Flood, Larry Doby, Althea Gibson, Wilma Rudolph, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, underrated, Hank Aaron, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, Charlie Shifford, the first black golfer in the PGA, Wendell Scott, no relation, first uh, driver in the... Um, First black driver in NASCAR. Those are the type of people I wanted to talk about because those people are the bridge to the next generation of great, impactful black athletes of distinction. If you're speaking about those athletes in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the, the guys that I grew up with, guys like Magic Johnson and Mike Tyson and Reggie 
Jackson, O.J. Simpson, you know, the original Michael Jordan, you know, the one that wanted to appease white folks, make as much money as he can, and, you know, later on in life, go out and start killing people. Not Jordan didn't do that, but O.J. did. Walter Payton, Doug Williams, the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Edwin Moses, Sugar Ray Leonard, one of my heroes growing up. Cheryl Miller, the greatest, one of the greatest um, uh, female basketball players who's ever lived. Jerry Rice, Cheryl Swoops, Lisa Leslie, those type of people. Warren Moon, he's the only black quarterback in the football quarterback in not only the uh National Football Hall of Fame, but also the Canadian Hall of Fame. He won five great cups in Canada. Had to go to Canada because when he won the Rose Bowl as a black quarterback at Washington, people in the NFL wouldn't draft him. They were like, yeah, you go ahead and play wide receiver. He's like, no, I'm not playing wide receiver. I want to play quarterback. He goes, well, you know, black folks can't play quarterback, and the AFL and the NFL has merged, so we really can't do anything for you in terms of giving you an opportunity to play quarterback in the NFL the way it's construed right now so he had to go up to Canada and become one of the greatest quarterbacks of his era not just in Canada but just in North America in general won five great cups as I mentioned before won the offensive great cup most valuable player twice was an NFL pro bowler nine times my favorite one of my heroes growing up number four along with Byron Scott number one one of the numbers that I cherish in terms of uh people that I looked up to Warren Moon man yeah, so other foundations of uh, players and black athletes building their brands, becoming their own industries. The, the the players that I just mentioned, those were the guys who made it more acceptable for white folks to look at black folks as heroes. Again, O.J. Simpson was the leading man in that. Magic Johnson out there in L.A. Jerry Rice, those guys. Giving Reggie Jackson. You remember Mr. Uh, the, 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 the Candy Bar? Reggie, what the, Mr. October or Reggie, I forgot what the candy bar, I know it was named after Reggie Jackson, but I mean the candy bar, Mike Tyson, you know, those type of guys, Walter Payton, Sugar Ray Leonard, another guy who, great smile, good looking guy, your family guy, a, a Olympian, this, that, and the other, you know, he was on a Sprite commercial and all those type of things, those guys were the foundation for players to all of a sudden start building their brand when you're speaking about Bo Jackson and Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and Charles Barkley, I ain't no role model. Flojo, Florence Griffin Joyner, Michael Johnson, Deion Sanders, primetime, Gabby Douglas, Ken Griffey Jr., Carl Lewis, those type of guys. Those were the guys who started building brands. Those were the guys who, you know, started, you know, building that portfolio and making boatloads of money off the field also by doing commercials and everything. Jordan and Woods and those guys took it to a whole new level, you know. And so we see the present-day athletes who have their influence based on those guys like LeBron and Simone Biles and Colin Kaepernick and the Williams sisters, Steph Curry, Bubba Wallace, Kobe Bryant, those type of guys. You know, taking from uh, their mentors like Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, formerly known as Chris Jackson, the guy who I saw play at LSU when Stanley Roberts and Shaquille O'Neal were both seven-foot freshmen with Dale Brown on the court. And my goodness, man, I... Stuff that Chris Jackson was doing just blew my mind. Him and Rex Chapman, the white boy from Kentucky who was dunking over everybody. When I first saw those two guys, Chris Jackson at the time, soon to be Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and Rex Chapman, those were one of those, you knew where you were when you first saw those guys play type of moments. Because I had never seen, there have been Bobby Jones and there have been other white guys who could play like black guys, but until Rex Chapman showed up on the scene, I never saw a white guy play like that guy did. 
And when he went up and tried to dunk over Purvis Ellison against Louisville, me and my closer than brother, Mikel Davis, lost our minds. We could not believe a white guy was playing like this. So, you know, th those type of things had an impact moving forward. So, you know, the thing is, is that it's all about generations and it's all about building. The social and economic, the social impact that LeBron and Bubba Wallace and the Williams sisters and Kaepernick and Simone Biles, what those people are doing for the next generation, for the upcoming 20 to 25 years, those are going to be those guys. Just like for LeBron, MJ, and Tiger were those guys. Just like before them, uh, Magic and Walter Payton and Warren Moon and Doug Williams were those guys. Mike Tyson were those guys, you know, and before them, it was a situation where, you know, Arthur Ashe and, and Ali and Kurt Flood and Wilma Rudolph and Jabbar and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Those guys were those guys' heroes. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So we just need to, my thought is, we just need to keep that connection going. So for those who might be growing up idolizing and loving LeBron, that 20-something-year-old or that guy in his late teens, he needs to know that LeBron is the product of a Michael Jordan, who's the product of an O.J. Simpson, who's the product of a Wilt Chamberlain, or someone like a Colin Kaepernick, who, you know, we're speaking about, you know, the stuff that he's going through. He's a product of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He's a product of of uh, Craig Hodges. He's a product of a Kurt Flood. He's a product of a Larry Doby. He's a product of a Jack Johnson. He's a product of a Joe Lewis. And on and on and on and on and on. Because when you're gone and I'm gone and your wife is gone and your kids are around our age and they're going to have their heroes, they might not recognize what LeBron James is doing right now. They might not recognize the impact that Colin Kaepernick had. Because they're going to have their heroes who are going to be doing stuff to change society and make it better. So their job is going to be to teach their children, hey, let me tell you something. Back when I was your age, yeah, LeBron James, don't sleep on the impact that he had. Bubba Wallace, what he did for NASCAR, don't sleep on the impact that he had. The Williams sisters, what they did for tennis, don't sleep on the impact that they had. Because the people that you're idolizing right now and talking about changing the world and making it better, if it wasn't for those people, then the person that you're idolizing right now, your generation's Colin Kaepernick, your generation's Warren Moon, your generation's Arthur Ashe, your generation's Sugar Ray Robinson, your generation's Jackie Robinson, your generation's Jack Johnson, would not have happened if it wasn't for those people. So that is what I want to do regarding that. And I hope in some small way that I did that. Without John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising that fist, there is no Colin Kaepernick. Just remember that. All the stuff that LeBron is talking about, if it wasn't for Magic, if it wasn't for um, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, if it wasn't for those guys, there would be no situation. If it wasn't for Jim Brown, it wouldn't be a situation for LeBron to have the platform, to have the impact that he has when he takes a stance on any political situation, on any political issue, regardless of what it is. We are now in a generation of we are not going to just shut up and dribble. And it was for those forefathers that came before them that have given the athletes of today of color the strength and gender, by the way, and gender.
I mean, Megan Rapino. Uh, I'm sorry, if it wasn't for Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, uh, you wouldn't be, be able to do the stuff that you did. If it wasn't for those female tennis players, if it wasn't for an Althea Gibson, if it wasn't for a, day, a Babe Dietrichson Zaharias, uh, those situations wouldn't be available to uh, someone like that, you know? The women's basketball game, the WNBA, and we see these young, great, awesome players, wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for Cheryl Swoops and Cheryl Miller and Lisa Leslie and uh, Sue Bird and those and those people. So, and, um, oh, and, oh, my goodness, the one who married Don Drysdale, the woman who married Don Drysdale, I forgot there's a couple of other really good pioneer female basketball players who right now I'm forgetting where five minutes after this is over, I'm going to remember. Ann Donovan. Yeah, Ann Donovan is one. <clears throat> There's a couple of others who paved the way, <clears throat> who paved the way for the WNBA and all of these great players to uh, do their thing. So, you know, let's. I just want to keep history connected to each other because the further along we get sometimes, we might uh, forget, especially now where, you know, you go on the internet now, you try to go to a, you try to uh, go to a, a, a newspaper, you try to go to the New York Post or the Washington Post or the um, L.A. Times and, you know, the local newspaper, you have to pay for it now. So if you don't have that type of access, everything now is you have to pay for. So the availability to receive information, to get information, has been curtailed and has been uh, thrown a couple of obstacles. So we'll see what happens. But I wanted to keep it going, which is the reason why I I did this. All right, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going to end tonight. I'm going to play the rejoinder music with a little Otis Redding. Oh, yes. I'm going to give me a little Otis Redding. This is from the time when he was in London on the Otis Redding tour. This is when he was with Carla Thomas and Booker T and the MGs, the Marquis, Eddie Floyd, um, Sam and Dave. Uh, they... they Went all throughout London and the uh, European suite. They went to Sweden. They went to Norway. They went to Paris. They went to London. And they just blew everything away. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. So this is, try a little tenderness from the legend Otis Redding. This is from one of his closing shows. I believe this was recorded in Paris. And he brought out uh, Eddie Floyd and... Carla and Sam and Dave and those guys at the end and I just can't say enough how much I absolutely positively undeniably love Otis Redding why he hasn't been why there hasn't been a movie done about them about him number one his wife won't let anybody do it or his widow won't let anybody do it but uh the guy is just the guy is just awesome it's like man when I get to heaven like I mentioned before and then, and then the first few, whatever, when I get to heaven, if there, if heaven exists, I've got to see Otis Redding. I've got to see Malcolm. I've got to see Sam. And I've got to see Otis Redding outside, of course, of my immediate family members. So, peace, love, happiness, unity, togetherness, Otis Rocket. <laughs>